Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Two Idiots Podcast. I'm Reg. I'm Randy. Is what Randy would say if he were here. But this week he is um, not incommunicado. Well, he kind of is. Um, his wife isn't feeling well, so he's looking after their daughter. So it's just me and a guest. Um, so this week we're joined by documentary documentary that's the word maybe one of them filmmaker <laughs> academy award uh, on the academy award winning documentary um the cove which highlights um basically dolphin murder in japan um and the the, the trade in in that um he also uh it was a sailboat captain he <laughs> looked after yachts for billionaires um He's a big Jets fan. We get into a whole bunch of that um, and creating the film and, and dealing with all of the intricacies. Um, yeah. And we talk about veganism and some climate change and their other projects uh, like uh, Racing to Extinction or sorry, Racing Extinction um, and other projects they have in the works. He also helped create the oceanic preservation society and uh which is how the cove got made so we have a, a great discussion um touch on a lot of really heavy things have a lot of fun it's uh it's, it's a treat yeah oh yeah also guy was in the military um worked on helicopters and, and planes and and all that stuff more on the technical side um yeah so guys done everything <laughs> so uh simon hutchins joins us from florida this week so without further ado enjoy So welcome here. <laughs> How's it going? Thank you, Reg. It's going very well. Thank you. Yeah, Mr. Mr. Simon Hutchins. Um, so, <laughs> well, when I first heard about you, actually, uh, a few months ago, um, a mutual friend, Dale Sawchuk, had mentioned you, um, and he told me to watch The Cove. And I, I at the time, I watched at least yeah, probably like half of it, 20 minutes of it through YouTube or something, just some, some clip that was there. Right. Um, but... That we're now chatting about it. I, I was watching it again today to kind of refresh my memory and try and get to the uh, to the nitty gritty of it. Um, I, I, before we really get into that, before we dive into that, I'm curious about your life because it sounds like you've kind of done a little bit of everything. Um, yeah. Maybe start with that. Yeah. Like kind of a introduce bit of yourself. A Renaissance man career. Um, <laughs> you know, it. Uh, I was actually born in London, England, <clears throat> and we immigrated to Canada when I was five and a half years old. So I had my sixth birthday in Toronto. And uh, my dad was an aeronautical engineer and his dad was an aeronautical engineer. And um, my dad decided to leave England at the time the British aircraft industry was becoming uh, nationalized, you know, becoming okay. very, as a, as a liberal government, uh, thing was becoming very socialized in Britain at the time. My dad was a bit conservative. So we went to Canada. My mom's dad worked at Kodak for 50 years. Wow. And, uh, the only job he ever had, Kodak in London. Uh, basically, Kodak in London did the rest of the world. Kodak in Rochester, New York, which is the head office, did North America, South America. And Kodak in London did rest of the world. Hmm. He started there when he was 15 and he retired at 65. It was <laughs> pretty much the only job he ever had. Yeah. And um, so he was a photographer. He was much uh, you know, into chemicals and processing. You know, Back in those days, it was all film. And so when we moved to Canada, my dad worked at the uh, aircraft plant in Moulton, where the famous Avro 
Um, you know, after Avro closed down, they sold it to McDonnell Douglas mm. in the mid 60s. And uh, that's when my dad started there when it became McDonnell Douglas. And um, my mom ended up working at this uh, photography studio because um, she had a lot of photography skills. And, you know, I was I was damned. I was going I wasn't going to be an aeronautical engineer and I wasn't going to be a photographer. And here I am now, you know, 52 years later. And I'm doing, you know, electrical engineering and uh, photography. And <laughs> that's how all of my skills came together. Um, you know, what I do in the Cove, building all the gadgets and, and doing all the camera work. You know, it was funny how I started. Um, yeah, I didn't want to do that. And I started playing music with my friends. And I played in, you know, quite a few bands. We played around in Toronto and up in the Orangeville, Caledon area. Okay. Um, stuff like that. And... I could see that that, you know, that was a tough road, you know, and <laughs> you're either going to be really famous, make a lot of money, or you're going to be on the road for the next 40 years playing bars. Yeah. And so I decided to, you know, I was also working for my mother at the same time in her studio. And so I was had thoughts of becoming a photojournalist at that time. And again, that was a, you know, it was, it was tough to break into that because I didn't have any uh, uh, education in, in photojournalism. Sure. And I had a lot of aircraft knowledge, and a lot of aircraft skills, just from uh, my father, you know, uh, learning from osmosis through my father. And so I decided to join the Air Force and um, became an avionics technician. What does that mean? What's, what's an avionics technician? <laughs> yeah. And so I, I worked in the lab. I had a great job. Um, okay. I really loved it. I, I worked up in the lab. And so kept my hands clean. They would bring components up from the aircraft every morning grab a cup of coffee, go over, look at the shelf, decide what I want to work on that day. And you had to get in early, right? Because if you didn't get in early to the shop, to the lab, you know, we had to do the toilets as well. They had electric motors in them, okay. you know, and had a valve and it was all electrically controlled. <laughs> and so if you got up there and there was a toilet there that needed servicing, yeah. I would pick something like an airspeed computer or, a, you know, an ADI, <laughs> something like that. Yeah. Uh, so, some kind of interesting thing that I could put on some interesting equipment to, to fix and to calibrate. And, the guy that always ended up showing up late all the time, the Sarge would have to go, oh, you know, you got stuck with the toilet, you know, you're <laughs> late again. So, so anyway, the lab was a great environment. I really liked it. Got to work with a lot of um, complicated uh, test equipment. Um, and my last couple of years in the Air Force, I, I was posted down 442 Squadron down on the hangar floor, actually fixing the aircraft. Cool. And I got into sailing at that time. And then in the early 90s, the... Canadian government decided to downsize the force a little bit. It was a good idea because they did a lot of uh, uh, economizing of the budget and um, it had some really good ideas. And it kind of made some of us redundant. And the initial round, my trade was not on the list. It was called the FRP, Force Reduction Plan. But the second round, it was. And so I took the uh, the golden handshake, as it was, <laughs> as a little bit of cash uh, payout to quit. Of course. And uh, I had a 29-foot sailboat, and off I went. I sailed down the coast from Vancouver Island to San Diego as my first stop. It was America's Cup 94 at that <laughs> time in San Diego. So I was like, okay, well, I'll stop here, watch the America's Cup, and then I'll go sailing around the world. Yeah. And there was all these super yachts there. And, you know, I, I just started helping out on super yachts, cleaning, doing, you know, odd jobs on deck and stuff. And one Avoiding day they the said, you know, we've got this electric <laughs> doormat and we put it down on the dock and it's a wire comes into the boat. So if anybody comes to to visit the boat, you know, on a big super yacht, you're down below. You don't know who's on the dock. You, if yeah. they're knocking on the hull, you don't hear it. <laughs> so uh, they said, yeah, it's not working. So I, I looked at it about 10 minutes later, it was working. 
And then the engineer said to me, oh, well, that was pretty good. How did you, how did you figure that out? And I'm like, it's two wires. It's a doormat, you know, it's like a doorbell, you know? He goes, I got this problem with the generator. One of the generators, it starts and it shuts down. And I said, well, I'm not a diesel mechanic, but I'll have a look. <laughs> and so I go down in the engine room and on the front of this generator is a big white box and he opens it and inside's PLCs, uh, you know, programmable logic controllers, some relays and, uh, you know, a few lights and stuff. And he, and it was looking, it was like him, a cow staring into a fridge, you know, he's just staring into this box going, I have no idea what all this does. <laughs> and I look at it for a couple minutes and I'm like, well, obviously this is the PLC and here's the start solenoid and here's the... You know, and he's like, wow, like, like I was Merlin or something. <laughs> and so, you know, about an hour later, the generator's running fine. Yeah. And he's like, well, how'd you learn how to do that? And I'm like, well, that box running that generator is a lot less complex than, uh, you know, boxes on aircraft that run engines, you know, and uh, <laughs> you just have to look at it and follow the wires and figure it out, you know, yeah. and. I, I realized at that point that there was a, a bit of a future for me in, in yachting. And uh, so I became. Uh, uh, I went to school. I got my Canadian uh, uh, mate certificate. Um, I, I went, flew to New Zealand, joined another boat where I started working, and I started doing a lot of diving. Oh, yeah. So we go off to uh, Papua New Guinea with a very famous uh, expedition leader whose name's Amos Nahum. He runs these big expedition uh, trips now, and uh, he goes all over. They still, you know, this is 25 years later, he's still doing this. And um, he was on the boat with us and he had uh, back then it was all film everybody uh, used to shoot with their underwater cameras with um slide film okay and uh <clears throat> and the reason they did that slide film you could actually process it on the boat easily because it was just like processing regular film or black and white film you could do it in a, a you know a couple of processes you didn't sure. have to carry a lot of chemicals you didn't have to print it you could just use a slide viewer to then look at your work and see if you were you know getting the right exposures getting you know getting what you wanted what you thought you were getting so with slide film it was very very easy and so we're on the boat and all of a sudden somebody says oh um can you can you take care of this camera do something and i would just grab the camera and do it and then you know oh and then the e4 slide process yeah do you know yeah i know all that and they're like <laughs> how do you know all this you yeah. know you're a you're an aircraft guy and i said oh no 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 no. my grandfather worked kodak 50 years my mom had her own studio in toronto my mom's studio in toronto was called ontario studios I mean, what a great name, you know? <laughs> and uh, so, you know, so I'd worked in there and I, you know, so, so I just had all of these weird set of skills, you know, yeah. and we had started diving on those trips and I was a, a, a beginner diver back then. And, you know, I, I had my patty open water, but, you know, compared to the people that I was diving with, Amos Nahum, he's an ex-Israeli secret service agent, basically. He was ex-Israeli military. That's where he got his uh, diving uh chops from and uh, he actually worked uh you know after he left the military he worked somewhere in israel that you know we can't speak of, of and then he decided he was going to go and do uh expeditions around the world and lead uh, dive trips and so i'm diving with these guys that are just you know world-class divers and i went oh this is cool so then i added diving to my my repertoire of skills and so i do uh electronics cameras and uh, diving and that's kind of what i've been doing for the last 20 years <laughs> that is, it, it, it's amazing how how it all comes together especially when when you, you when someone's like well how do you how do you do that just the confidence to say well i'm not a diesel mechanic but i can take a look yeah just right i mean that's, right. that's yeah, it reminds me of a, a joke about a gynecologist but uh <laughs> we, we, we won't mention it <laughs> 
I, I think oh, I can see got, where that's going. The there. <laughs> yeah, I think I can see where it's going. Yeah. <laughs> um, but anyway, okay. So, um, I mean, I didn't do a very good intro clearly, but without any preamble. So basically, you were involved with the Academy Award-winning film um, or documentary, The Cove. You are a sailboat slash yacht captain guy, <laughs> and you know. You're a big Jets fan, which we'll definitely get into later. Um, clearly, yeah, yeah. Not, not so much last night. <laughs> oh, nobody was last night. Um, <laughs> but yeah, not so even then, Paul Maurice. <laughs> then, yeah. <laughs> then plus your, uh, you know, your your military service and, and, and you're a very interesting guy. So <laughs> I'm not even sure where to go from here. So basically, you joined the uh, when you were when you were in the military. Um, did you ever think to join to, to actually like fly the airplanes, or you always wanted to go the the kind well, of the technical I did. route. And so, you know, you go to the recruiting center. So at the time I, I'd been, like I said, I was playing music in Southern Ontario and, um, you know, it, that was a lot of fun. And it, it was, it was, you know, you really weren't making a living. You know, there was three of us, three guys living in a farmhouse in Mono Mills, which is airport <laughs> road and highway nine, you know, about an hour <laughs> North of Toronto. So we're renting this old farmhouse in the middle of nowhere. So it was really, organic it was really eclectic you know it was it was beautiful you know there's a band we've got this old farmhouse we're renting we're making original music we're playing a lot of covers we'd go out and play bars on the weekends to make money and it was not enough money you know i mean we're barely paying the rent we couldn't really afford to heat the place in the winter but, but you're living we're the playing, you know and you go to you go to a bar right and you're playing music and playing a lot of beatles songs and stuff like this to you know so that the bar uh, owner will pay you and uh, you're running a tab, you know? And so yeah. you're there, you know, from six, seven o'clock at night, you go in set up and then you start playing at nine, whatever you're there till one o'clock in the morning, last call. And then the owner says, yeah, you know, I'm paying you all $200. Uh, your bar tab's 150, your bar tab's 75. Your bar, yeah, <laughs> here's your $27, you know? And I was like, yeah. oh, I guess I should drink less beer while I'm playing. No. You know, probably make more money. So, yeah. well, exactly. You know, it's <laughs> it's it, it goes hand in hand. So it was a beautiful time, uh, you know, and and we were, you know, it was a very organic thing. And at the time, you think, oh yeah, this is this is uh, what you're going to do for the next fifty years. But you you start looking at it, going, well, we're good. But you know, you'd see other bands or you'd listen to other music, and we were recording stuff, and you're like, yeah, it's good, but. <sighs> You know, this is going to be a tough slog. And to really make it, you, you really have to have some, you know, sense that there's something really special a there. spark, yeah, something. And I decided that, okay, I'm going to go off and do something else. So I, I went back down into the city and I started working. And my mom had a second store, a second studio that she had um, opened at Avenue in Eglinton in Toronto. And it was more of an art studio. So we had a lot of framed prints on the wall. And... Um, the, the one that was in Etobicoke at uh, Dixon and Islington, that was the store that was the studio, the photography studio. But uh, so I was working there for a couple of years and I really didn't, you know, want to just do that. You know, I didn't want to just be working retail for my mom, you know, even <laughs> if it became a family business or whatever. I thought I want to go see the world. So yeah. uh, I decided I was going to join the Air Force. So you go to the recruiting center and you walk in the door and to your original question, you say, I want to be a pilot. I'm here. Where do I sign? Yeah. And they're like yeah slow down cowboy you know um we got a we got enough pilots you know we're the canadian air force you know we have like you know 10 f-18s and a bunch yeah. of hercules and um you know and a bunch of old helicopters blah 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 you know it's like we don't need that many pilots and um also they obviously they have their programs where they're taking people from uh 
uh, RMC, Royal Military College in Kingston, where they're putting people through, you know, right from high school, you know, you start going to RMC to become a pilot. So there's a set number of the pilot positions they're allocated for years in advance. Yeah. And they only take, they, they do take people that just walk in off the street to be pilots, you know, don't get me wrong, but you have to be, you know, kind of the perfect you know, candidate, you know, to yeah. just walk in off the street, you know, it's like, it's like getting a walk on audition to play for the Raptors, you know, <laughs> you know, it's, it's, yeah, some guy could just walk in off of some, you know, but three I three on three tournament yeah. at the corner of Peel and Finch, but highly unlikely. Yeah. So they said, yeah, you know, you're a little bit older than the average guy that walks in here. I was like 24 and a half at the time. And uh, yeah, you're, you know, they give you the IQ test. And so I did the IQ test. And they come back and they say, okay, you did really well on the IQ test. This is what we're going to offer you. And, but I don't recommend the following. And he had kind of highlighted things that he doesn't recommend. And it was like, not to offend anybody that's one of these trades, but like infantry, you know, eh, maybe you don't want to go infantry. You know, you did really well on the IQ test. Maybe you want to do, and they, they offered me a couple of uh, commissioned ranked positions. One was artillery officer. And I was like, yeah, I think I'm going to take a hard pass on artillery officer. Um, cool what else title, we got? Man. And they said, well, we got these spec trades. And the spec trades in the Air Force were um, you, you get paid a little bit more because the training's a little bit longer. And um, we actually spent about a year and a half uh, in, the, in the technical school at Kingston doing uh, electronics and then at CFB Borden doing the uh, avionics training. And so they're investing a little bit more in you. So they want, and then they pay you a little bit more at the end than the average. Uh, you know, the guy that's just uh, carrying a rifle around a field in a rain in the rain. <laughs> so um, so I said, OK, well, I'll do that. That sounds and I had a lot of aircraft um, uh, interest and a lot of aircraft knowledge from my father and my grandfather. Um, so I decided to go that route. And uh, that's how I, you know, just walked into the recruiting center one day and came out as a, a avionics recruit. Yeah, you basically walked in and became a Raptor. Or actually, it's like walking into the Raptors' place and becoming not the GM, right, but like an analyst for the Raptors. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, I, I was not the guy dunking the ball from, yeah. you know, the top of the key. No, well, not that guy. Nope. But uh, yeah, so it was really interesting. And it was interesting after I had, you know, my, my career kind of run its course. There was a few options for me when I retired because that was at the time the new Cormorant helicopter was being discussed. At the time, it was called the EH-101. And uh, my, my father had actually gone to Italy to work, and he worked at Air Italia, built the ATR-42. I'm not sure if your listeners are familiar with that aircraft. It's, it's similar to the Dash 8. Um, my father also worked on Dash 7, Dash 8 at de Havilland in Toronto. But then he went and uh, worked in Italy on this ATR-42 and ATR-72 aircraft. And so he was in Italy at the time when the EH-101 was being discussed. And part of the EH-101 was being built in Italy. And they were going to send a bunch of technicians over to Italy to become the first uh, the first wave of technicians that were working on that project. Those are some and sweet so I signed helicopters. up for that project, and I'm like, I'm all in. I'll do yeah. that. Um, and you know, the, the Cormoran, it was an exciting new helicopter. Everything else that I was working on was built and designed in the, or designed in the fifties and built in the sixties. And, uh, you know, here it was 1989, uh, 1990. And it was still the same, same old thing. It turned out when the, the Chrétien government came in and decided to reduce the budget and, and downsize the force a little bit, the EH-101 project got scrapped. The problem was that they'd already invested a lot of money and effort into it. 
and they still needed a helicopter to replace the aging uh, uh, Chinook Labrador fleets of and, and the Sea Kings. Yeah. And they did make a deal with the U.S. to get some old Sikorskis. But the CH-101 thing was still kind of on the back burner, even though the Chen government had kind of kiboshed it. Um, you know, we still had our deposit in. The Canadian government had still put their deposit down. So it took about, I don't know, 10, 15 years, and it kind of came full cycle, and they ended up getting the, the helicopter eventually. And, um, but by that time, I had, I had left. And it was funny because there was a lot of people that were um, leaving at the time I left um, on the force reduction plan. And I remember some of the people that weren't leaving, you know, because was, I was in seven years. So that was the kind of time when you had to decide, okay, seven years, I've, I've done seven years, I'm still young. I was just, you know, 32 when I left. Wow. Do I, you know, I, I'm still young enough to start a new career. If people yeah. had had 15 years in, you know, and they're like, you know, maybe getting close to 40 and they've only got five years left to their 20 year full uh, investment in their pension, yeah. you know, full, fully uh, vested into the retirement plan. And so for me, it was like, okay, I can, I can pull the, the, the golden parachute ripcord here and, and get out with a little, uh, a little stipend to help me on my way and go and start a second career. And so I decided to do that. Some of the guys that had been in, you know, eight, nine years, they're like, they were stuck, you know, they weren't sure what to do. And they, they were saying to me, what are you going to do when you leave the, you know, when you leave the perimeter fence, you know, it's if yeah. you're in civvy world, you know, you're going to be a civilian again. Are you yeah. crazy? And I'm like, no, I'll figure it out. You know yeah. I mean? I, when I joined the military, all my civilian friends were the saying the same thing. You know, what are you going to do? You're going to go join the air force. You know, yeah. I was like, yeah, give it a shot, you know? <laughs> so, uh, yeah, you gotta be a little bit adventurous, have some confidence in yourself and then just, just go and do it. You know, if you work hard and, uh, pay attention to, to what you're doing and, and, you know, kind of chisel out a career path, it doesn't matter where you are, what you're doing. If you're in the military, you can chisel out a career there. Or if you're in civilian life, you know, you just have to, you know, work hard and uh, kind Grind. of see where the stepping stones are. Do I need to do these courses, upgrade my skills to do that? It was funny because after I started yachting and I just had this weird set of skills, you know, I had a lot of aircraft knowledge. I had a lot of electronics knowledge. Um, I also had a lot of uh, photography knowledge and, it, you know, none of it was all a complete, you know, degree in anything, you know, <laughs> yeah. but certainly when you molded it all together, and then I'm on the yacht and somebody goes, wow, you can fix electronics, you can dive, you can, you can process film, you can, I was like, yeah, that's me. How did you learn to do all that? And it's like, yeah, by accident, really, you know, just bad luck, you know? I mean, you never could so, learn all of it if you actually tried, but to become a well, jack yeah, of all trades. It's, it's a weird curriculum. Yeah. yeah, to put that together, you know? So, um, <laughs> but, uh, but it, yeah, it's certainly been a lot of fun uh, the last 20 years doing that. Sounds like it. So then, so then you basically everything that you kind of worked towards in your life or that you worked through led towards working on the cove or did they overlap well, in some way? Again, again, it was one of those, even that was kind of a weird um, set of circumstances. So I was working on a yacht, 155 foot super yacht um, for Jim Clark. He was the founder of Netscape and uh -huh. um, Healthion, uh, Silicon Graphics. And he had started a few companies and, and, and made, uh, made his fortune basically. So I met him and he had a hundred foot sailboat. Was that, and the, that Athena? Was the boat that I was on in, yeah, um, in Papua New Guinea with Amos Nahum and, and Jim Clark. Mm -hmm. And after that, he decided to build this 155 foot boat and it was being built in Holland. So it took two years to build this boat. So I spent 
about a year and a half in Holland working on the project. And I was responsible for putting all of the computer systems into the boat. Wow. We put um, at 27 Silicon Graphics Unix computers on this boat. It was the first <laughs> boat that was fully automated in the sense wow. that you could do everything from a touchscreen. We had a, some of the first touchscreen. This is 96 when I started working <laughs> on that project. Yeah. Right. The boat was launched in 1999. So, um, it, it was really a, a technological marvel. What were the and, Y2K concerns? <laughs> sorry? Did you have any Y2K concerns after? Oh, uh... well, it was funny because we were in New Zealand. We went to New Zealand for Y2K. Yeah. And it was all the, that was a big joke, but that, you know, a lot of the other big super yachts were like, oh, you know, Hyperion's <laughs> not going to be off to run tomorrow morning. It was like, <laughs> yeah, the computers are fine. It's, it's the deckhands that are incapable of getting up early on New Year's Day. <laughs> yeah, of course. So, yeah, it was a good time, uh, Y2K in uh, Auckland. So anyway, we were, we were as, uh, you know, late 98 or early 99, we were still at the shipyard in Holland and Luis Ahoyas, who was a freelance photographer at that point, but he had been with National Geographic for 18 years. And so now he was freelancing and he came to photograph Jim Clark for the cover of uh, Forbes magazine. Uh, I believe it was Forbes. This episode of the Two Idiots Podcast is brought to you by Manscaped. Fellas, we're in a thick of winter and the storms are brewing. Brilliant. Looks like one to three inches are in the forecast when you trim that hibernation bush that's taking place in your pants. <laughs> Luckily, our partners at Manscaped specialize in products to make sure you're walking around town with beautiful snowballs. Frosty the Snowman Beautiful. Manscaped is here to provide you the best tools for your grooming experience, offering precision engineered tools for your family jewels. Randy... When did you last shave them uh, winter balls? I was shaved about three weeks ago, about a fortnight or so. <laughs> a fortnight is, isn't that 20, yeah, 20 days, isn't it? It's something like that, I think so. <laughs> <laughs> Four score and seven years ago. Um, but uh, yeah, and because I had the Lawnmower 3.0, it did a phenomenal job. No, no nicks, no cuts. And with that in mind, the Lawnmower 3.0 trimmer is the best hygiene tool for the modern man. Because of the ceramic blade and advanced skin safe technology, your snags on your snowballs will be reduced. <laughs> the trimmer is also waterproof, so you can trim in the shower or a jacuzzi if you're a savage. If you're a savage, yeah. If you're if you're trimming your nuts <laughs> in a jacuzzi, especially if it's not your jacuzzi, um, then you are definitely a savage. That's like that's alpha male shit right there. Yeah, and <laughs> especially if other people are in the jacuzzi. Anyway. Manscaped's performance package is the best buy of 2021. The performance package comes with the new and improved Lawnmower 3.0, Weed Whacker Ear and Nose Hair Trimmer, which we all need as we get older, performance boxer briefs, and a travel bag. Bonus. Have you ever noticed how nasty nose and ear hair is? In fact, 79% of partners polled admitted that long nose hair is a major turnoff. I deal with long nose hair myself. It is a pain in the arse, but... If you get yourself the weed whacker, you're a nose trimmer, you can deal with that. And you might as well use the best tools to do the job. Indeed. This bundle also comes with the Crop Preserver Ball Deodorant and Crop Reviver Ball Toner. The Crop Preserver is anti-chafing ball deodorant that will make your balls smell nice and make you feel like your testes are walking in a winter wonderland. My God, doesn't that sound good? Now, the Crop Reviver is a spray-on toner for your balls, and it's made with soothing aloe and witch hazel extracts witch hazel. that will make your balls look up at you and say, Thanks. <laughs> you're my you're my friend. Thank you, Randy. <laughs> you treat me so nice. <laughs> Don't get cold feet this winter. 
Get 20% off and free shipping with the code IDIOTS at manscaped.com. They also have a ton of other amazing men's hygiene products on their website, from disposable mats for your pubes to foot deodorant. Now remember, that's 20% off with free shipping at manscaped.com and use the code IDIOTS. That's 20% off with free shipping at manscaped.com. Use code IDIOTS, I-D-I-O-T-S. Thanks, Manscaped, for making our winter wieners look so good. <laughs> winter wieners. I love that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so th- let's uh, let's make your balls look up at you and say, thank you. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Thank you, yeah. guy. <laughs> hey, guy. <laughs> <laughs> so definitely check out Manscaped. 20% off, free shipping. Um, idiots. Code idiots. To say thank you. Do it. And so Louie came to the boat and um, we took Louie up the rig to the top of the rig. And then we took Jim Clark up to the, uh, you know, the top spreader. And Jim Clark was standing on the top spreader looking up at Louie, who was taking a picture looking down and you could see the whole boat. And if you ever see that photograph, it's out on the Internet around places. You've heard of the Internet, I take it. (laughs) Yeah, Um, a couple of times. There's three guys standing down on the deck uh, looking up and uh, I'm the guy on the right. And uh, anyway, so and you can see three guys uh, on the foredeck of the boat and I'm the guy on the right. And uh, so Louis photographed Jim, hung out in Holland for the weekend with Jim and they got along really well. So then after the boat was launched, Jim Clark invited Louis to come and photograph the boat. And because he wanted to do a, a coffee table book about the boat, the building of the boat and all the electronics that we had installed into it. Yeah. And so Louis came on a couple of trips to photograph the boat. And during this time of photographing the boat, Louis became good friends with myself and Jim Clark. And Jim then invited Louis on a couple of expeditions that we were going on to go diving. We went to Cocos Islands off Costa Rica, Galapagos, um, all through the Pacific, Tahiti. And, and Louis cool. came on quite a few of these trips. And we were putting together these little videos. These are like little home movies. And Louis went back to his studio in Colorado and put together these DVDs and brought them back. And one of the DVDs in particular was just the one from the Galapagos. It was just really well done, even though, you know, it still looked a little home movie-ish, but it was really well done. And we had some great shots, you know, whale sharks swimming over top of (laughs) each other like that and um, sea lions dancing in the surf and stuff, you know, just flipping around in the surf. And it was really, really entertaining to watch. And, and Jim Clark said, you know, you guys should make a movie. And Louie and I looked at each other and went, yeah, we should. So Jim <laughs> invested or uh, donated a little bit because he's very uh, generous with his philanthropy. He do- donated a little bit of money so that we could start the Oceanic Preservation Society. And we started OPS with the goals of creating media, um, still images and video to promote the preservation of the world's oceans. That's kind of our mission statement. And Jim Clark was our initial uh, donor. Oh, and he, okay. uh, yeah. and he, so he funded uh, OPS. And then we started working on the film, The Cove, and it morphed a few times and, and, and Jim continued to support it. So very generous uh, of Jim Clark to do that. And he um, enabled us to, to complete this film. And it did kind of go down a different path than we had envisioned at the beginning and and that Jim had envisioned at the beginning as well, because when, uh, as, as Louis states in the film, when he went to the uh, whale conference and met Rick O'Berry and Rick started explaining to him what was going on in Japan, 
Rick was a very compelling, and as you've seen the film, Rick is a very compelling antagonist, yeah. uh, protagonist rather. <laughs> Depends on which side you're on. Yeah. Very, <laughs> very compelling protagonist yeah. in the film. And, um, and the Japanese were very compelling antagonists. And uh, it just, it, there was a really good story there. And then we met Kirk and Mandy, the free divers. Yeah. Um, they actually live in Campbell River, um, Vancouver Island now. Oh, cool. And um, that was, um, you know, great to have them on board with, with the film as well. And everything just went from strength to strength as we were doing the film. And, um, you know, a lot of the things that we were doing were very adventurous. And the funny thing is, as you've seen the film, even the opening scene, the, op the, the film opens with kind of the end. You know, Mark Monroe is the writer and uh, he's still working with Louis on quite a few other projects. And he's done a lot of other great documentaries as well. Mark Monroe had this idea once he had seen what we had to kind of mix up the chronological order a little bit because you yeah. want to create some suspense, even though it's a documentary film. So the very beginning of the film is we show this sequence of us in the van with the night vision cameras all jumping out of the van, running into the cove. And that creates that suspense. Like, what are they doing? You know, I thought this was <laughs> a documentary about dolphins. You know, why are these guys all dressed in black running around at night? Yeah. And um, e e even that, e e even getting to that point was a, a bit of a revelation too, because we had Fisher Stevens, who was helping us to produce the film and he was getting uh he got mark monroe involved and he also got jeffrey richmond the editor involved but the first time we had this two and a half hour long you know rough cut that we had put together and fisher came over and he's watching it and he's kind of scrubbing through and he's like yeah this is good this is good stuff yeah very compelling rick's very compelling the japanese tag, very compelling but what else you got and when we said well <laughs> we got this b-roll stuff of us you know we've been filming ourselves going there we've been yeah. filming ourselves going in the cove and everything so we put together this little b-roll and it's gonna like the dvd extras the making of the cove and and fisher's like well let me see that so we show fisher the 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 little you know the outtakes and the b-rolls and he just looks at us and he goes that's your effing movie you can swear if you and like we went <laughs> <laughs> Hey, you know, there might be children listening. Eh, I doubt it. So, uh, yeah, so that was that was Fisher's reaction to our little B-roll. And we went, huh, okay. And so that's when he brought Mark Monroe in and showed all of that stuff to Mark Monroe. And Mark Monroe went, oh, yeah, this is good, good stuff. And so, you know, Mark Monroe kind of, it's almost like he, he cuts it all up, cuts the story up and puts it in a hat and pulls it and puts the pieces down in a different chronological order. But yeah. it creates suspense and it creates like, oh, why did they do that? Oh, I know why. Because you explain it later. It's amazing. It's, it's, it's really, really well, well done. done. Yeah, we said it at the same yeah. time. Um, so, so, <laughs> so the whole thing, like the, the, the reason that the movie became so great was because we, we, we made it from the heart, you know, and we were really passionate about it. We knew we had a great story. And then Jim Clark. It was the one that introduced us to Fisher because Jim said, well, that's you guys are on the right track, but it's not polished enough. And so mm -hmm. Fisher came in and then Fisher brought in Mark Monroe and Jeffrey Richmond. And then that was actually we weren't even finished the film. We were still doing stuff, interviews and stuff. But that really gave us a lot of, you know, and so then Mark Monroe would say, yeah, you, you need to go and redo this interview and, um, you know, or something. You need to go redo that because this is how it's going to. And we're like, oh, yeah. And so we would go and redo an interview with some other questions to make it fit into the to the storyline that we were telling uh, and yeah, yeah. and it really really came together in the end it really I, I mean obviously it did winning the academy award for best documentary yeah. in 2009 um 
And again, I think we should, I mean, <laughs> we got pretty into it before even really announcing to people what it is. Um, for, for those of you that don't know, the people that are listening, um, it's very similar. It's on the same lines of like Blackfish um, talking about, um, you know, orca capti- captivity and, and that type of stuff. But basically focused on dolphins and porpoises and what do they call them again? Pretations or? Uh, well, cetaceans are the cetaceans. whole uh, yeah. order of um uh, marine mammals that exactly. you know come up and, to the surface and breathe. <laughs> and basically so, their their story I, in specifically Taiji Japan and and sort of the Japanese kind of whaling industry and kind of how it's manipulated and how many of these dolphins and and, and porpoises and such are uh, sold into captivity and and just objectively slaughtered when they're not wanted yes. or it's it's Correct. really 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 poignant and pointed and powerful stuff. Um, yeah. It's very uh, yeah. powerful. And, and and there's a scene, you know, probably about uh, 80% of the way through the film. And it's very, uh, it's a, a real reality check. And um, and it really brings the whole story that we're telling for the first 80% of the film to a head. And it's some people find it hard to watch. And they hear about that and they say, well, I don't want to watch it because I don't want to see that. Yeah. But we don't leave you there. So for anybody that's contemplating seeing the film, after that moment in the film, that's the low point. We immediately, we just bring you back up and there's very few words spoken after that, but it's all very bringing you back to a point that empowers you, you know, so we don't leave you in despair. And during, during the film festivals, you know, um, Moondog, Greg Mooney and myself, uh, who was our Marine technician on the film, we would go outside the theater at that point in the film because people would come out and we would just talk to them and say, look, just give it a couple minutes, wait for that scene to finish and then go back in because you don't want to miss what comes next. You, yeah. you know, that you, and that's one of the reasons that we won the Academy Award because the whole film for a documentary, you know, we, we, we take you on a complete roller coaster ride and we leave you feeling empowered that you can actually do something to, to make a difference. Yeah. Or I hope we do anyway. <laughs> well, it's, and again, it's, it's so, um, well, frankly, traumatizing to watch some of that and, um, but that's right. the point. That's that's sort of without that, then it's just you know a Disney movie, and frankly, right. that's not what exactly. Uh, and that's what I'm saying. Like that that traumatic part, that traumatic scene, we don't leave you there. You know, yeah. we, we bring you back, and we and we put you on a pedestal. Like as far as like, yes, I can make a difference. These guys went and tried, and and we we did make a difference. It's still going on over there, but there's a lot more awareness to it now. And there's other organizations as well. Sea Shepherd, Paul Watson, they've been yeah. doing a lot with their Whale Wars TV show. They've been bringing a lot of awareness to it. So, you know, everybody's just got to keep kicking the ball in the right direction and, you know, bringing awareness to these issues. And eventually they'll become, uh, you know, culturally unacceptable to do it. You know, there's a lot yeah. of people in Japan now that it's culturally unacceptable. Well, to, yeah, to I mean, kill I'm, whales and dolphin. I'm glad that it you know? is. And and frankly, there's so much that many of those things bleed into other questions I have. But before we move on, um, again, within the movie, a lot of it is kind of night vision, thermal scopes and, and kind of because, uh, again, to sort of preface it, <clears throat> in many of the places you're going are closed by the Japanese government and they're not accessible to the public and they're supposed to be, well, sort of, you know, yeah, at, at yeah. least they're frowned it's upon. It's not so much the Japanese government. Like the Japanese government has you know it's a very old society and you know they've only they had an emperor up until the end of the second world war it was yeah. it was a very close society and they do things their way and but it's not so much the the federal government 
as in Taiji particularly, it's the local fishermen. Sure. Because that is actually a park. It's 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 a park. Um, and the local fishermen just go in and put the barbed wire up and nobody uh... nobody says anything. <laughs> Right. So the, okay, the, yeah. the, 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 the federal government, whoever the, the provincial government, whoever's above, you know, these local Taiji officials, you know, everybody just kind of turns a blind eye to it. And it's like, yeah, OK, let the fishermen have their little cove, you know, yeah. but uh, um, nobody really says anything. The um, the federal government is, uh, you know, I, I'm to, to describe it with, correctly is. Well, like I said, they're very Japanese. They're very in their ways. They have their way of doing things. And they they know that certain things are wrong, but they don't want to change it because they don't want the, you know, the the East, uh, the, the people from the West coming and telling them how to run their country. You know, yeah. Japan is a very closed society. There's there's mm -hmm. not a lot of immigration. It's yeah. it's one of the few places that is still, you know, like 95 percent indigenous uh, Japanese. It's very ethnicity. homogenized. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Even even Korean people that go there and, and live there, they're kind of looked down as, you know, lower class, you know, it's yeah, yeah it, it's a it's a very insular society. And so the, the government is very protective of Japanese culture. And so even if they know it's wrong, they're like, oh, well, you know, that's the way we do it. And the yeah. ironic thing is, you know, um, in the United States, the whaling industry was huge. You yeah. know, um, New Bedford, Massachusetts, all the whaling ships that went out of New England, you know, Herman Melville, the story of Moby Dick, whale ship Essex, all of these. The Hartford stories. whalers. <laughs> you know, the Hartford whalers. Exactly. <laughs> so, um, you know, the New England whaling industry was huge. And that was one of the things that funded the American Revolution. Mm -hmm. Right. And that was one of the reasons that the British government was saying, well, you guys are making a lot of money off this whaling thing. You know, you owe us you know, we're, we're taking, you know, 10% of your, and they said, no, we're not giving you a dime. You're not protecting <laughs> us. You know, we're going out as American ships. Yeah. And if you, if, if the Royal Navy is going to protect us from pirates and, and, and come and help us when we need help, then, then we'll pay you the tax, but no taxation without representation. We have no representation in the house of parliament in Britain, yeah. and we have no protection from the, from the Navy. So why are we paying you? And so the whaling industry was very big in the United States. So when, um, uh, you know, classic opera, um, Madame Butterfly is about the uh, U.S. Navy going to Japan okay. and the captain of the, the U.S. Navy ship falling in love with the Japanese woman. Back at that time, the United States, um, which is in the, you know, mid 1800s before the Civil War, they were uh, going into Japan and trying to colonize it. Um, unsuccessfully yeah um maybe not colonize is not the right word because you know it was a, a you know a running civilization uh, it's the right uh, word so, it's the right word <laughs> so but they would they you know they went to try and exploit the the, yeah. the resources and that and they realized that if they taught the japanese how to whale that they would be a lot more economically prosperous uh, and it might help them you know and so it was actually the americans that taught the japanese how to whale and then oh. at the end of the Second World War, um, when Japan was devastated and their economy was in shambles, again, the Americans said, well, you know, you got whaling. We showed you how to do that 100 years ago. Why don't you, you do more of that? And mm -hmm. so the Americans actually encouraged them uh, after the Second World War to eat whale meat huh. um, because it was, a, a, you know, it was a natural resource that was there. And um, 
So it's it's kind of ironic now. Like when you talk to Japanese people, they're like, well, yeah, but you know, we didn't. It, it, it's it's not something that was historically, you know, 500 years ago or a thousand years ago. Japanese weren't, oh, yeah. you know, whalers. You know, they yeah. learned it from uh, Western civilization. That's amazing. You know? I and had now, no idea. Yeah, huh. right. So now, 70 years after the end of the Second World War, when they were encouraged to go whaling to feed themselves, well, they were starving. They were yeah. in very desperate times. And they were encouraged to go whaling. And now we're saying, okay, well, remember when we encouraged you to go whaling? We're, we're not encouraging you to do that anymore. <laughs> <laughs> so, well, wow. But, uh, yeah, what are the odds of that? I yeah. mean, and and again, on some level, I get it. Like, even if it was their cultural thing, um, you know, over centuries and and you know whatever right, right. even not, then it's still wrong <laughs> you know like right, I, right times change right yeah there's yeah. a lot of things that we all did you know hundreds of years ago um yeah. in our in our cultures in our ethnical cultures that we just totally unacceptable now yeah. and um just uh making uh, marine mammals uh go extinct uh, that's a pretty big deal um yeah. all all animal life you know um everything depends on each other, uh, you know, to, to keep the, the planet running smoothly. You can't really upset the balance of anything. Um, that yeah. was the OPS uh, follow-up film to The Cove, Racing Extinction, which is about the uh, sixth major extinction that's happening right now. There's more species going extinct now than at any other time in history, right? So the previous five extinctions that went on, including the extinction of the dinosaurs, mm -hmm. is not as many species went extinct on a yearly basis as what's happening right now. And wow. this is the sixth major extinction. It's called the Anthropocene, which mm -hmm. means the, uh, the age of man. Yeah. Um, and um, so it, it's the human created extinction, the sixth extinction. And, uh, and that's what our film Racing Extinction was uh, focusing in on. Again, man, you're just and, right on, uh, my, on my question list here. I have it written here, Racing Extinction. That's perfect. <laughs> we didn't coordinate this yeah, at all, no, almost no. not at all. <laughs> but, uh, I know. Not if I can only re read Paul Maurice's mind. I, yeah. I feel well, there's not much to read there. It's, it's just staring out into yeah, the I abyss. Know. Um, <laughs> I know. No, I, I, I don't think, uh, yeah, uh, not, not that we need to. I, I think I know what he was thinking last night. I can tell you that watching that game. <laughs> A <laughs> couple of expletives, um, but yeah. So then, with with the cove, uh, again, it it's such a powerful thing that because I don't know if it's changed. I, we'll definitely get into that, but I'm curious because to start with, it was around twenty three thousand dolphins and, and porpoises are being killed a year, um, and then however many are being shipped and sold and captured and and sent all across the world, <clears throat> almost exclusively from you know either Japan or or Taiji. Um, when you're getting, because in the film, like I said, there's a lot of night vision stuff. When when you're actually getting that footage, when you're setting up the cameras, was it as dramatic and terrifying as you guys made it out to be? What was that experience like? I think personally, yes and no. There's certainly moments of sheer terror. Mm -hmm. There's moments like when you're when you're like the first couple of times that we went in, we had no idea what to expect. We had planned for it and we had built a lot of this equipment in Colorado before we went and Louie had you know had a lot of ideas and so well we should try this we should try this and I was like well technically I don't think that's possible I think what we should do is just put the cameras in there at the time you know wireless technology for us to kind of live stream it out of there and record it somewhere else just sit back at the hotel and record it yeah. you know it just wasn't possible so I said no we gotta we gotta put it in there we have to put the cameras in there. We have to build a large battery bank. So the thing's just going to run, 
um, you know, put in really long, uh, um, you know, at the time we were still using the, the digital tape, but it was still a, a tape. Okay. And so we would have it automatically come on at a set time. So half an hour before sunrise and then just run until the tape ran out. And um, then we would just put a big battery. And so a lot of this we had um, uh, tested and built this equipment and we took it over there. The first time going into the cove, we really had no idea. Um, a lot of times the fishermen would park out front. And so we had some little tricks that we would do. We would take two cars, for example, we would take one car that the fishermen would have two guys sitting in the car, drinking coffee, watching the cove, right? <laughs> so all you have to do was, you know, their night vision is perfect, yeah. right? They're sitting there in the dark watching, <laughs> right? We would just take the first van, drive up, face them, turn the high beams on. <laughs> The second van would come up behind them. We'd all get out, run into the cove. Once the second van left, the first van would leave. So now these guys, their night vision is shot. Yeah. And they have no idea what went on behind the van that was shining the lights into their eyes. <laughs> so, but having done that, we didn't know if somebody else was in the cove with a radio or a phone. You know, we, yeah. we had no idea. So the first few times that we went in was a little bit uh, harrowing because, you know, once we built up a bit of confidence in our technique and you know we had to change it up too because if we went in and shone the lights in their eyes they didn't know if we were going in or not right yeah. so we would even on nights that we weren't going in we would just drive by there and if they were there we'd just go shine our lights in their eyes <laughs> right and they'd be like oh they must be in and so they'd run in there and look around and we weren't there right yeah. so you know we had to like you know bit of a shell game you know and uh but so after a while it became you know, a little bit like Tom and Jerry, really, it, it almost became comical at points. Um, some of them were following us around and they actually got a room in the hotel with us and they were on the same floor. And I guess they thought, oh, we'll keep an eye on them because yeah. we'll get a room in the hotel. Right. So I guess they had somebody in that would just walk the, the hall of the hotel to see when we're leaving. Anyway, one night we got back to the hotel late. We get in the elevator and they're in the elevator and we go up and we both get out at the same floor and I just turned to them. I just see you tomorrow. I don't know if they knew what we were saying, but it was, it was like a Tom and Jerry cartoon, yeah. you know? And so, yes, the, there was harrowing points. And, um, and then there was points when you, it almost became complacent, you know, not, not so much complacent, but we, we, we became more accustomed. You know, we always had to keep our guard up. So you didn't want to become complacent, but we had to keep our guard up and, and be aware all the time. But it's sometimes, we got more comfortable going into the cove, knowing where to look, knowing where there was one time we were actually in another hotel and there was another NGO group there. And because again, you go to this hotel and it's all Japanese people. And then you see some, uh, you know, some young people, they look like, uh, you know, they support Pearl Jam and they have uh, a <laughs> bandana on and they've got a nose ring in and you're like, yeah. Oh, well there's some dolphin savior activists. activists right. Yeah. And we actually said to them, whatever you do, don't go to the cove this week, you know? And they're like, oh, well, we flew all this way. We want to go in the cove. And we said, don't go. We have some work to do in there. And they're like, well, who are you to tell us? Anyway, so we went in there a couple of days later and we had the FLIR camera. And so we could see um, the heat signature and we we're walking through the bushes and we could see these bodies in the bushes, right? So we, you know, saying to each other, okay, stop whispering to each other. And then somebody goes, I think it's those guys from the hotel, those kids. <sighs> <laughs> and so we just walked up with, and we had the, the flare camera on and we, we just said in English, so you guys stay in the bushes, don't move, don't move until you know, like lunchtime, 
you know, make sure nobody's here. Cause if anybody sees you, you're going to blow our cover as well. Yeah. And then we left and I can just imagine, you know, like six months or a year later when the film comes out, they're like, Oh my God, those were the guys. Because <laughs> you know? they must have seen it because that's the, you know, they were going there for the same reason. Yeah. So when the film came out, they were like, oh, yeah, those are those guys that told us to, you know, <laughs> sit down and don't make a move and yeah, don't make a noise. And, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, okay, so how long were you guys there in Taiji? Uh, was it multiple trips? and Multiple trips yeah. over, you know, a few months. So okay. um, you know, one of the longest trips was, you know, close to a month. But we did other things while we were there, too, because like I said, it was a bit of a, you know, Tom and Jerry cat and mouse show. And so we would go there. And then when we thought when they thought there was a bit of a pattern developing because they were following us around, we'd go and do something else. Um, so Louie and I went up to Hokkaido to interview uh, the uh, scientist that was analyzing the whale meat and mm-hmm. dolphin meat for uh, mercury uh, heavy metal content. So we went up to Hokkaido for a few days. Um, there was a couple of other side trips that we did around Japan. So, so we, you know, we, we, we changed it up a bit. We would change hotels frequently to do different things and uh, yeah. um, different research. And, uh, and there was even some things that we would have to uh, kind of like reassess when we were there. Um, Cause like I said, we had planned it all. Um, you know, Louie had gone over with Rick, but he didn't go in the cove, but he went over with Rick and visited Taiji and, um, visited the whale museum and then when he came back he kind of gave us the scoop okay this is how it is this is what we need to do and but when we actually got there we had to modify a few things so we'd go to the electronic store and so sometimes we'd go to the electronic store in a different town you know we yeah. didn't want to if anybody was following us or even we don't who's in the electronics it's like a best buy kind of big box yeah. big box store and we'd go in and buy different camera equipment or some different batteries different lights or whatever we needed um and uh so then we'd you know spend a few days modifying our our setup and then we'd head back to taiji and so the, the nice thing about that we'd usually head back in there when we weren't um you know there locally and so we kind of like roll in do everything and then go to the hotel the next morning and check in again stuff like that <laughs> so they didn't even know we were back in town yeah and uh it's so covert it's uh it was it was and that was the fun thing about when fisher stevens got involved and he saw our outtakes you know Mm -hmm. he's like that's you know that's the the suspense thriller you know it Um, puts the meat on the bones for sure uh, yeah 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 it was really uh interesting uh um evolution of how the film you know evolved from our original vision of just making this beautiful film about the oceans and uh um you know saving the ocean and then it slowly evolved into um after meeting Rick and then after meeting Rick, our involvement of actually, you know, cause that's what I, you know, gonzo journalism uh, in, in the words of uh, Hunter S Thompson, the famous author, you know, mm-hmm. the journalist should never become the story. The journalist yeah. is not, you know, part of the story. The, the journalist is the fly on the wall, you know, but Hunter S Thompson changed that, you know? And so fear and loathing in Las Vegas, it's a book about him. He was actually going, you know, to, you know, write some other story. Um, yeah. And even uh, when he went, uh, Sports Illustrated asked Hunter S. Thompson to go to the Kentucky Derby. So he went there and he basically wrote about the drinks and how many mint juleps he had and <laughs> all these ladies in their hats and everything. And he went on for, you know, like four pages about, 
collected mint juleps and the ladies' hats and the Kentucky bluegrass. And at the end, he said, um, and I think there was a horse race. I'm not sure who won. <laughs> and great. so anyway, it became known as gonzo journalism as in, in uh, you know, coined by uh, Hunter S. Thompson. And so that was a little bit of our, you know, we're not doing that. But yeah. it turned out that we were exactly doing that. We became <laughs> gonzo journalists and we became part of the story. But it really it makes it it makes it hit because um, again as I'm watching I don't know anything about journalism or photography or filming or you know ne- even the whaling industry overall. Um, but it watching kind of the the setup and and the the sneaking around and the setting all this up and filming it and being you know pushed back and all, it, it's powerful stuff. On that note, what um, you mentioned briefly that it has had some impact. Um, and so then maybe you can get into a little bit more what. How has it changed from before the film till now, as far as you know? Well, in Japan, there's more awareness, and the um, dolphin and whale meat industry certainly has taken a hit. Um, they used to actually, they were still feeding it. Uh, you know, during the film, we point out the fact that it was on the school lunch menu. And so <laughs> a lot of that um, stopped pretty quick because, um, you know, younger Japanese parents um, didn't want their young children eating uh heavy metals um yeah, yeah. and so the, the 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 lunch school program shut down and that and that certainly made the industry take a little bit of a hit there's certainly a lot more awareness now for um uh, dolphinariums you know how much uh you know certainly there's less demand than there was um there's there's more of an interest in captive breeding programs not that that's any better because mm. it still encourages bad behavior but um, you know, so it, it, it's, you just have to keep chipping away at it. You know, you're not going to, you know, break up an iceberg with with one ice pick. You know, yeah. it, it's a long process of slowly chipping away at it until you, a crack develops that's large enough for it to break into smaller pieces. So, um, you know, and expose more surface area so that, you know, and, and that's, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a process. It, it, it took, you know, a couple of hundred years since, uh, you know, the middle of the 18th century sorry, the um, 19th century, 1800s, when uh, Japan started whaling for sustenance, you know, and it was just sustenance whaling, you know, so that they could survive and eat. And after the Second World War, they continued it. And so it 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 took 100 years to develop that industry. It's it's not going to happen just because of one film, but it makes a lot of awareness. David Kirby, for example, who came on a trip with us to Japan, is the author that ended up writing the book Death at SeaWorld. Uh, and Gabrielle Copperthwaite, who did the book uh, Black or the film Blackfish, mm-hmm. um, basically based a lot of it on David Kirby's book Death at SeaWorld. Yeah. So there was a little bit of a follow-on right there. You know, David Kirby is an environmental journalist, and um, the marine mammal uh, issue was was you know close to his heart, and he'd written a lot about it, and that was one of the reasons that he contacted us, and we we were in touch with him, and we took him to Japan with us because. We, uh, you know, he, he was writing stories about it. And um, so if you ever read any reviews of The Cove by David Curry, they're very good because he really <laughs> <laughs> And uh, anyway, so he he wrote the book Death at SeaWorld. And that was actually, uh, you know, that orca was um, from the Pacific Northwest. It was in Victoria for a long time oh, at yeah. that um, Dolphin Park in Victoria, British Columbia. Mm-hmm. It closed down and that dolphin was moved down here to Florida. And um, so Tillicum's journey, you know, started and, and had 
sometime in Canada, in Victoria, a person died. Wow. At that dolphin, that's the reason the Dolphinarium closed down. You know, they talk a little bit about it in the film. Also, one of Tillicum's, I, I mentioned captive breeding, you know, um, one of Tillicum's uh, offspring was in a park in Canary Islands, uh, Parco Loro, I believe it's called, and somebody was killed there as well. So that, uh, you know, Tillicum was uh, responsible for two deaths and indirectly responsible for a third. Yeah. Um, so that was, you know, David Kirby's book, Death at SeaWorld, uh, which Gabrielle Copperthwaite made into the film, Blackfish. And it all is part of everybody, you know, slowly kicking the ball, you know. So we had the ball for a while, you know, we kind of pass it over. David Kirby passes it back to us. We pass it over to Gabrielle Copperthwaite. She carries it on. It just creates more and more awareness and you keep chipping away at the iceberg, you know. And sure. uh, yeah, the iceberg's getting smaller. There's more awareness. Um, you know, going to SeaWorld now is, you, you know, now, um, here in Orlando where SeaWorld is, you know, they have rides, they have, you know, it's, it's more of a, a, an amusement park. And they're oh, saying, yeah. oh, our, our dolphin program is, is just for science and research and rehabilitation. We take, you know, um, we save dolphins that are washed up on the beach. We bring them to our facility, we rehabilitate them, we send them back out into the wild. But if if they can be rehabilitated, you know, oh, well, yeah. we had to keep it, you know, but shoot. Yeah, so. bummer. Yeah, whoops. <laughs> Whoops. Yeah, that, but, that's you know, so there yeah. is Yes, there's definitely some science being done there. There's some, uh, you know, veterinary work, some rehabilitation work being done. But at the end of the day, it's to sell tickets for the amusement park. And the dolphins are just another ride at the amusement park. Yeah. Um, and so that really needs to stop. You know, they need to just say, okay, if we're going to do that for um, rehabilitation and science, then there's no shows, you know, yeah. there's no Shamu show anymore. Yep. You know, they're, they're, we're not making them do tricks for humans, you know, and you know, this captive breeding program, this got to stop, you know, I'm um, having these animals in these tanks. There's um, Lolita here in Miami, the Miami sea aquarium. Uh, Orca has been there over 40 years now in a tank. That's like the size of my house, yeah. you know, honestly, it's, <clears throat> It's, it just swims around in a circle for the last 40 years. It's tragic. And it's then you watch their dorsal different. fins kind of flop and exactly, you know, they, yep. everything. It's, yeah, yeah, it's depressing. Yeah. They prolapse. Um, they have no, uh, you know, they're, they, they can't get down deep enough for the, the, you know, cause it needs water pressure to kind of hold yeah. it up and hold it straight. And so when they dive down the, the flow of the water and, and the, um, uh, buoyancy of it, you know, keeps it straight up But it, when it's out of the water all the time, it eventually, it just collapses. Once it collapses, that's it. It, it never yeah. stands up again. It's like cauliflower. So, um, so yeah, that's so sad. <laughs> like, uh, <laughs> we'll bring you say? back at the end, you know, yeah, yeah. we don't we'll, leave you here in despair. <laughs> <laughs> we'll shoot back up eventually. Um, I was going to say, cause I, th I saw that, um, um, Canada has banned the, um, the keeping dolphins and, and, and that type of stuff in captivity. Right. Um, right. I mean, ha have you been to places like Marineland in Canada and kind of seen what it's, what it's like? Well, there when before? I was a kid, you know, I grew up in Toronto and Niagara Falls was, uh, yeah. you know, uh, a popular place to go uh, either on a school trip or, or with your parents, you know, uh, during the summer, you'd always go to Niagara Falls once every couple of years. Um, so I had been to Marineland when I was a kid, I've been a couple times, um, during the filming of the cove and just after um courtney vale who is one of our 
um, uh, social um, outreach and, and does a lot of work on um, with OPS. Um, and she was with a, a dolphin conservation uh, society that she was running. And um, she now does some work with, with OPS. Um, she and I, when we were in the Dominican Republic in Porta Plata, we went um, and we were there taking pictures as tourists. Mm -hmm. And uh, so, yeah, we've been, but it's not not to uh, encourage them. It's more to expose them and to, um, you know, also Miami Seaquarium. I've never been inside Miami Seaquarium. I've been out front protesting on a few occasions uh, yeah. when Rick O'Berry was organizing protests there. <laughs> so, Wow. Yeah. And that's, I've gotten more and more, I mean, my wife is vegan. Um, so then she's mm -hmm. very like, into saving the animals and, and such. And, um, and so I've definitely and, and gone, you're not vegan? I'm not, um, I think I, I could eventually become a vegetarian. It's, it, you know, it's slow. It's been a slow process for me, but I'm not, uh, I'm not opposed to, um, moving so that way. Maybe I could just, uh, put in a, a shameless plug for, um, not an OPS film, sure. but a film that Louis was the director of, cause, um, Louis done a few other projects outside of OPS that are not, um, uh, oceanic based uh, mm -hmm. themes, but um, it's a film called Game Changers and it's about top level athletes that are vegan. Oh, yeah, and I think I've seen the power lifters. Yeah. Um, an MMA fighter is the uh, main protagonist in the film, mm -hmm. and um, he, he was the one that kind of wrote the story. Um, he had hurt his knee um, fighting and then he wanted to rehabilitate quickly. And he wanted to find out what all the foods were that were anti-inflammatory. And it turned out it was all plant-based. Uh -huh. So he then went on a purely plant-based diet so that he could rehabilitate himself. And he found that he was actually stronger. He was more aware, more alert. And so um, he, he went down this path of veganism. And the movie explores a lot of the science. It talks to a lot of uh, uh, scientists that have been doing research on uh chronic disease and, and things like this and how it's based on a lot of things that are in our diet that we really were not yeah. evolved to eat. You know, we, we, we don't have teeth like, uh, you know, like a dog can eat pretty much anything. A dog is a carnivore mm -hmm. and you can tell by its teeth. You know, we don't have teeth like a dog or a wolf or a lion um, or a cat for, for that fact. You know, um, we don't have fangs. Um, our molars are more like a horse, more like a cow. Oh, yeah. Fair more enough. for mulching. Uh, mulching up fibrous plant material mm -hmm. you know we do have our our front teeth and our canines but more for biting apples things like that you know eating um carrots <laughs> you know <laughs> that we can cut through a carrot yeah. cleanly you know it's they're not designed for eating meat um so um having said that game changers uh, it's a really good film uh, uh lewis hamilton you know seven-time world champion uh, formula one driver mm -hmm. vegan um so mm -hmm. there's a lot of people and um for your uh a, a man's sexual health as well a lot of erectile dysfunction issues um are being uh, kind of traced back to um, a lot of fatty um uh, animal products that we eat and if you get off of um and, and eat a purely plant-based diet um your performance will be better. Let's just say that. So <laughs> if that's a so ring endorsement, should... if anything, you, if, if, if there's exactly. any way to get people, especially around, around here to get on the, on the bandwagon, right. it's not to save animals. Right. It's to say that your, your boner will work better. That's, that's what... <laughs> exactly. Exactly. You know, Louie and I were talking recently and uh, unfortunately we were talking about as you get older and you have, you know, 
prostate issues. And we were talking about this exact thing and then mm -hmm. getting onto a plant-based diet, there's less chance of having prostate issues and other, you know, inflammation is less so your body can heal quicker. And, and, and I just jokingly said, yeah, can you imagine getting some kind of prostate cancer or something? And they take that out and your junk just doesn't work anymore. And Louis said, oh, I might, I might choose death. <laughs> you, know? So, you know, if that's the choice, right? Yeah. So, one or the other. so, so there's a lot of benefits to the, to the vegan diet and, sure. um, it's better for the environment, you know, like eating cows is very, very inefficient way of getting the, the protein. So we take all of this corn and grain or grass, whatever we're going to feed to the cow, we put it on the truck. Well, first we got to farm it all, right? Yeah. So if we're going to farm it all, why don't you just eat that? We should just eat that. But no, we're going to put it all on a truck. We're going to send it to Texas or to Calgary or to wherever we're going to send it mm. and feed it to cows. Argentina. Right? <laughs> and then we're going to take the cows or we're going to kill them, put the meat back on the trucks, refrigerated trucks, mm. and drive it all the way back to where we are. Yeah. Right. And so all of the fossil fuels and then all of the um, methane and, and other byproducts that the, the cows are producing, which is all waste. You know, people here, they um, in Fort Lauderdale recently, we had all these sewer main breaks and there was like 20 million gallons of raw sewage went into the new river here in Fort Lauderdale. Oh, yeah, shit. because the interest, all the old plumbing, it's all old cast iron sewers. And so they're slowly changing it all to, you know, modern PVC piping. But all of this sewage went in. People are like, oh, my God, you know. You go to Texas and you look at one cattle farm. Yeah. What happened here in Fort Lauderdale is a drop in the bucket. Those They don't have sewers for cattle. They just yeah. all poop in the thing. And when it rains, it washes into the river and it washes into the Gulf of Mexico. You know? It's true. It, do, it doesn't. Where else is it going to go? And then these E. coli things. Oh, the E. coli got onto the lettuce. Well, where did it come from? <laughs> it comes from the cow farm that's, you know, two farms over. And then it hasn't rained. And all of this cow dung is... Um, has e coli in it it dries up a wind comes along it it blows the dust over onto the lettuce yeah you know so if you didn't have the cow farm there's a lot of people that would be alive today because they didn't die from e coli that's interesting so it's a lot more efficient to just eat the plants you know growing the plants to feed the cow so that then we can kill the cow and eat the cow is a very inefficient way of doing it it's true it's true <laughs> yeah no i mean again i've i've heard the arguments and i'm i'm not necessarily opposed to all of them i just haven't actually made the step yeah. I'm, I'm at the point now where when i'm eating like a burger or something i feel a little yeah. bit guilty but at least i'm aware of my yeah. guilt and why i feel guilty you know so i'm i'm i think i'm on the path towards maybe some sort of blended vegetarian-esque right. type thing um and, and but, i think you used an important word there guilty because you know what i think in your mind once you get past the I'm not feeling guilty because it's not a guilt thing. And I, and, and I don't, you know, we don't want to guilt anybody in, into anything, you know, and I'm not trying to preach, you know, I don't oh, be yeah. preachy and make people feel guilty. It's, <laughs> it's not about guilt. It's about uh, coming to a realization that there's a, a better path forward, you know? Sure. And so if you want to eat meat, great. Like if you lived on a farm, you know, 150 years ago, and then there was a sheep there and you were really hungry you say, well, I'm just going to, you know, the sheep, I'll take the wool off the sheep. And then the sheep's had another baby. So there's another sheep here. I don't need two sheep. You know, I'm going to eat the first sheep. Okay. You're not putting it on a truck and shipping yeah. it to a slaughterhouse and then uh, having to put it in a refrigerated truck and bring it back and then put it in a grocery store and all the refrigerated, all the energy that, you know, so obviously back, you know, when the agricultural, uh, uh, 
you know, infrastructure, the agricultural industry was taking off on a small scale, it was it, it was a lot more acceptable. It was not hurting the planet. Now yeah. it's so industrialized, it's so huge that it's hurting the planet. And so it's just a matter of starting to realize that, that, you know, we're, we're hurting the planet more than, you know, by, by eating all of this meat and we're hurting our own bodies. So if you feel guilty about it, that, you know, that maybe is, is, is a little bit of a clue that you're starting to realize that, yes, there, there is a reason that it, it's not ideal to eat meat. <laughs> That's and everybody, everybody has to come to that realization themselves. Of course. And again, we just have to, you know, with any issue, just keep chipping away at it and, and presenting the facts to people and saying, you know, in, in the film Racing Extinction as well, we, we touch on it a little bit. There's a cow. There's a guy in South America that's been doing studies and he um, has cut a little hole in the side of a cow's stomach mm -hmm. and he's inserted this valve. I just saw and a picture so of that. He, yeah. And he is actually um, in, it has a bag that he puts onto the cow's back and it's just the methane and uh, the other gases that, uh, so cow farts basically. Yeah. And he's got this big bag of cow farts and, <laughs> um, you know, a, a lot of people will argue, well, you know, volcanoes, they spew out more methane than all of the cows in all of history combined. It's like, well, not necessarily true, but a lot of that methane doesn't necessarily come out of volcanoes. A lot of it is from um, like under the ice. Uh, again, in Racing Extinction, there's the scene where the as the permafrost um, yeah. starts to melt, all there's the gases stuff, that are yeah. coming out and it gets trapped under the ice. And so when you break the ice, it will you know yeah. that is um sequestered methane it's it's trapped and that is from um organic materials trees plants animals that have died and gone into the ground same place oil comes from yeah organic materials trees plants animals that have died and gone into the ground that all of that carbon and methane is sequestered in the ground and it took millions of years for that to happen for it to get sequestered down there now in the last hundred years we're going to pump it all out and burn it <laughs> The, the planet can't keep up, you know, Yeah. It, like people say, well, it's just trees, you know, the, the, the tree went in the ground and now it turned into oil. We're going to take it out and burn it. It's a cycle. It's not a cycle. <laughs> that was a million, a million years worth of trees. We're going to pump yeah. it out and burn it all in a hundred years. Yeah, exactly. If, yeah. If you, if you took a tree and you burned it in your fireplace and turned that into CO2 and carbon dust, ashes and it goes out your chimney and then you you didn't burn anymore until you grew another tree that's a closed loop because yeah. the co2 it's going to go into the leaves of that tree and it's going to grow a new tree and then you're going to put it in your <laughs> fireplace you got one tree and one fireplace and it's one loop and you don't burn another log until you until your tree's tree. grown yeah yeah you don't you don't take a million years worth of trees and burn it all in a hundred years you know <laughs> that's the problem that we have right now yeah you know Wow. You got to leave all that oil sequestered there. We can't touch it because, you know, you can only take out and burn what the planet can filter out. What the you know, and as we cut down the rainforest, we're 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 removing our uh, filtering uh, capabilities. The planet's mm -hmm. filtering capabilities. Also, the ocean, as the ocean becomes acidified, it has less algae, less um, uh, photosynthesis producing uh, uh, biology in it, and so. The ocean produces about seventy percent of the world's oxygen. Wow! Right, because of all of the uh, yeah, all of the the algaes and the all of the plant life that's living in the ocean, and so um, 
it's 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 quite amazing that uh, you know all of this oxygen that's being produced in um, you know because if you think about it the the sur the the ocean is seventy percent of the world's surface so the other thirty percent of the world's surface well there's you know mountains alpine there's deserts you know how much of that is actually vegetation yeah you know and certainly as we build big cities like in la how much of the surface of la is you know la was once a desert you yeah. know the only vegetation there is now what man has planted and is irrigating uh you know artificially <laughs> so you know so the the actual you know rainforest is a huge huge thing uh south america is producing a lot of the world's oxygen other than the ocean but yeah. you can't go cutting down the rainforest because people just don't realize <laughs> how much oxygen that is, um, you know, filtering out the CO, CO2 out of the atmosphere and, and producing the oxygen. For sure. And, I, and that's so. the same thing with all of it. It's so very short sighted. And it's um, even with factory farming, it's all we need. the We need the food right now right. and like kill everything. And, and that's that's my main issue. I, I, I still think that if you can like say I had my own farm or had access to. Um, meat that wasn't produced in in the way that most meat is where say you have like you said the one cow and the whatever right. and then even if you are then killing those animals at the end of every season it's still a lot less bad than <laughs> than when we're buying right. but it, it's more of a closed loop you know yeah. and there, there's very little waste and you would use like i said you use the wool and then you would you know use the hide and and, and it would be exactly. a complete i know that like now they do in factory farming, they use a lot of the, uh, you know, all of the waste goes into dog food or fertilizer or, you know, there's, yeah. there's very little that actually goes to waste, you know, make glue out of the whatever, you know, but it's, it's like you said, factory farming, it's an industrial mechanism and it has so much momentum. It has so much lobbying power because it's a big industry, you know, and, and subsidization, and, yeah. you know, yeah. but it's, you know, there's a lot of things that people slowly will evolve to saying, well, you know, it's not right. We, we, we can't continue that way. You know, there's a lot of things in human history that we just don't do anymore. Even 100 years ago, there was things that we just don't do now. And those <laughs> people that were in those industries, those industries are gone. Yeah. You know, even now, there's industries, the, the film industry, um, uh, you know, photo processing, where my grandfather worked for 50 years. If he was still working at Kodak now, um, he, he'd have to be in the digital world, yeah. you know. He had zero skills for digital. I mean, yeah. when he retired, uh, you know, 1975 or whatever, I mean, Kodak was still a huge going concern. It was one of like, it was like the Google, the Amazon of the day, you know, yeah. it was one of the big billion dollar multinational companies. Now Kodak is a, you know, it's, it's just a shell of its former self. It's owned by some other conglomerates. It's really in name only. They do some uh, um, digital imaging yeah. and uh, printing and stuff. But it's it's not the Kodak of old, no, you know. It's, it's not. not the same ownership. It's not. It's it's basically just a, a former. And so all of those, you know, uh, an industry that had hundreds of thousands of jobs, gone. All of those jobs are now computer jobs, and uh, you know, um, computer hardware. You know, digital image sensors, digital cameras. You know, you don't see any cameras with the Kodak name on it anymore. And, yeah. and those are the people that founded the industry, you know, the, the Kodak Brownie in 1903 or 1910, whenever the first, you know, they pioneered the whole industry, they created the whole industry, and now it's gone. So what's wild happened, is that they even designed know? like the first digital camera. And then the, they became a separate exactly. department within Kodak. And then it weirdly like, 
cannibalized itself. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, and that's, that's all that they do have a small, and it, but it's been it was sold off. I don't know if it was Konica, Minolta, because they're all gone now as well. Mm. There was a lot of people that didn't get on the bandwagon, yeah. you know. And then there's these newer companies that are well, obviously Canon, Nikon did very well um, in the digital age. Sony now is huge, you know. Yeah. Sony is 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 uh, the real up and coming star in the still photography world, and um, incredible new cameras, and they've taken a lot of because everybody wants to do video as well. And the Sony video cameras have for a long time been, um, you know, the leaders um, yeah. in, in uh, not just uh, recreational amateur, but also in professional um, world, the Sony cameras. And now they're putting all that technology into the new still cameras. The new Sony stuff is just out of this world. Yeah. And um, I mean, that's great. Yeah, that's evolving thought, industry, right? But, and to bring it full circle, to connect it to the Cove, but when we're talking about, the meat industry in uh, the U.S. or just in in North America, the fact that so much of it is protected by gag laws, and you know you can't even go in there and film anything, you can't produce pictures of it, you can't do any of that. If your industry is is propped up by the fact that nobody can film it, then maybe you need to change your industry, and that's right. that I totally uh, agree with. You yeah. know, and it's right. uh, oh sorry, I agree with pushing against that is what I mean. Right, um, right. it's. It's ludicrous. I mean, my, my friend recently went, went vegan as well, and he'll be sharing things on his Instagram, like totally uncensored videos of, you know, um, basically male chicks being thrown in a grinder and, and, you know, the fact that cows in many ways have, like, access hatches, like, cut into their sides so that they can get to the stomachs or whatever, yeah. and they use them in, like, yeah. veterinary science and, and is the good yeah. part of it, but then they use it for studying the stomach and throwing yeah. things into it and blah, 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 blah. There's, there's a lot of yeah. really sketchy things that we don't think about. And frankly, the only reason it can exist is because we don't think about it. And very much like the cove, if you turn away from it, it yeah. doesn't exist. Right. <laughs> right. And anything, once an industry has been built up, you know, you have this industrialized agriculture and mm-hmm. it's a whole industry and there's a mechanism that has so much momentum that to change it. And that's why they, they, they know that if it, if, People see, you know, if, if the light of day hits some of those aspects of it that, you know, and, and they also know that we don't need to eat meat. You know, we can get just all of the protein, vitamins, minerals that we need from uh, plant-based products. Yeah. So there, there's no need to eat meat. And how, do we, how do we go forward then? I mean, this isn't necessarily a, a, a path I had intended to go down, but... Um, from your perspective, as someone that's dealt really closely with um, like ocean preservation and dealing with animals and, and extinction events and that type of stuff, uh, and as a vegan, how, how would you say, like, how, how do we pivot that? Uh, when in the Cove they say, what was it, 70% of the world's population relies on seafood as a staple right. uh, of, their, of their life, how, how do we move away from that? Well, you know, well, how do we move forward, in your opinion? Well that's that's the $64,000 question you know if <laughs> if i had an answer to that we wouldn't be having this conversation because we would need to yeah. you know we were just saying oh how was that uh, salad you had for lunch today reg and you'd be going oh it was great you know the cashew nuts on it were outstanding <laughs> we wouldn't even we wouldn't even be talking about industrialized farming yeah but um you know kidding aside i i think it's just by having discussions you know by being frank and and having more discussions and having more people you know you know, if you tell two friends and they tell two friends, 
you know, it's an exponential growth of an idea. And the only thing you can do is, you know, come to a, the realization yourself and, and not by feeling guilty, but just by feeling, you know, not being guilted into it. Like, you know, yeah. having friends say, oh, you should be a vegan. No, you have to come to the realization yourself. So a lot of times you can't, you know, you don't want to preach to people. You want to, you know, give them facts in a very non-confrontational way, but just to help them to understand what the issues are and how the issues can be resolved by one person making a change. You know, Mahatma Gandhi said, be the change, be the change that you want to be, you know? So if you feel that that's an issue, then you need to be, you know, the first step is changing yourself. And then once you've done that, don't become preachy. You know, nobody is, like they say, there's there's no uh, anti-smoker advocate worse than a ex-smoker, you know? <laughs> um, so, you know, it's just keep moving the ball in the right direction in a very matter of fact way, trying to educate people without preaching to them, just helping, you know, and we try and do that in the films. Like we try not to preach. Sometimes it comes a lot across a little bit, maybe in the interviews that we do some of the, the people that we have on are very opinionated Sure. that we interview. Um, you know, some of the scientists are working on a, a scientific idea and we interview them and they're very, you know, they, they have a little bit of tunnel vision, you know, because they're working on this one problem and that's, and so when we interview them in a film, they're very, uh, you know, focused and very biased in a way, not, you know, not intentionally biased, but just because that's what they know. That's what they talk about, yeah. you know? And so we have to be, you know, open to listening to their ideas and other ideas and then for yourself, make the decision yourself. What's better? What's better for the planet? What's better for me physically? What's better for my children, my grandchildren? You know, what's the way forward? You know, one thing yeah. I did here just recently, um, uh, because of the pandemic, um, and for people that are watching this in the future, um, we have a pandemic right now. Um, <laughs> what? <laughs> 2021. <laughs> yeah. Wait a minute. And um, they said that they were expecting, you know, a year ago, it, it's March uh, 2021 now. So it's been a whole year now that we've been in, in this pandemic. And they were expecting that the birth rate would increase because people were at home more. Yeah. But it's actually not. And the birth rate now, um, uh, particularly for the United States, I believe I saw the number yesterday, it was 1.7 uh, children per family. Mm -hmm. That's what the birth rate's at right now. And that is actually declining then, because if you have a mother and a father and 1.7, obviously it's less than two. Yeah. So um, it's a declining birth rate. And I remember when I was a kid in the 70s, you know, the population explosion, that was, you know, the biggest problem. The planet can't sustain everybody, you know? So a slightly declining birth rate is not a bad thing for the planet. It, it it might help a little bit. And then if we can get ahead of the curve on burning the fossil fuels, we and also, you know, now with electric cars becoming much, much more um, in vogue and, and car companies like Volvo, now Volvo by 2024, I believe it was, or 2030. I know by 2024, all of the cars are going to have an electric motor in them. They're oh. not going to be 100% electric cars, but they're all they're not going to sell a car that doesn't have an electric motor in it. So wow. they're all going to have batteries and electric motor be plug-in hybrid of some yeah. type. But by, I believe it's 2030, they're only going to sell electric cars. And, and a lot of car companies now, like even GM and Chevrolet, are announcing that they're making all electric cars. You know, yeah. 20 years ago, that was the, uh, 
the taboo. That was the death of a, a car company. You know, if you tried to sell an electric car, yeah. you know, Elon Musk comes along and says, no, you're wrong. And, you know, he buys an old uh, Nissan or Toyota factory in Fremont, California and starts making cars, <laughs> you know, and people want, huh? I guess there is a market for them, you know? Yeah. And so now all the car companies are doing it. Volvo's one of the, um, you know, on the, on the bleeding edge, you know, kind of putting their toe in the water first, but um, yeah, all, all of the other car companies are following, you know? And, it's, uh, it's such a, so, it's a huge thing. Uh, and again, especially with, <clears throat> especially, I don't know, around where I live and even Western Canada and in a lot of ways, it's a very, um, it's becoming almost like an Americanized individualism sort of, I don't care about that because it doesn't affect me or I only care about that because it affects me instead of right. thinking more broadly of what the, uh, what the future implications of that might be for other people. It's all about me. Um, right. And even with, with meat and, and that type of industry, it, it really feels a lot. I know a lot of people that, and I understand it on some degree. If you, if you think that, uh, humans aren't in the same class as quote animals, um, then it's easy to say, well, it's fine. We can just kill them. That's what they're here for. We're supposed to eat them. And that's our entire thing, right? It's right. super, I, I get them, get the path towards that outcome. Um, but we need to get to the point where I agree. Humans are animals. Yeah. We're just smart animal. Well, relatively smart animals, yeah. <laughs> whether or not we're yeah. actually smart. I don't we know. Have opposable thumbs. Yeah. Big brains. So, That's... But it's, you, you make a good point. And that was kind of boiled down. Uh, I, I don't know who coined the phrase, but it was kind of the environmental movement would always say, think, uh, act locally, but think globally, you yeah. know? And so it's, it's like what you're saying that people, they see their local environment around them and they do act locally, but they act locally. Oh, well, I can, I'm just eating one steak, you know, how, what, what harm can it do to the planet? I'm just, <laughs> yeah. I'm just, I just want to barbecue. You know, I got my friends over in the backyard, you know, it's just a few of us. We're going to grill a few steaks. You know, they are acting locally and they, and they don't see that the bigger implication is, well, that steak came from a factory farm that had to grow corn in Iowa and then ship the corn to, you know, Texas or Calgary, wherever the corn went. And then, you know, all these trains and trucks that are moving all of this stuff around to get that steak to your door, it's got a pretty huge carbon footprint. Yeah. And it's not doing you any favors by eating the steak. You might think that, oh, it's a good source of protein. Well, your body has to process that. And, it, you know, if you ate steak every day, you're going to get heart disease. There's no question about it. Sure. No question about it. It's a scientific fact, you know, so you do have to limit because your body cannot, you're not like a dog. A dog can eat steak every day because mm. its metabolism and its biology has evolved for it to be able to do that. We cannot do that. We have to really limit it. And, um, you know, I, ideally, if you limit it to zero, it's, it's your body says, oh, well, this, I don't even have to deal with any of it. And the planet doesn't have to deal with the, uh, the, the carbon footprint of getting that steak uh, grown into a full-size cow and then slaughtered and then put on a truck and shipped in a refrigerated truck to your grocery store where it's refrigerated and <laughs> uh, the carbon footprint of that space huge and yeah. people don't think of that you know they just of think course. about oh I'm, I'm in the backyard i got a few beers with my friends yeah. and we're grilling well and even know? fundamentally if if you don't think that climate change is an issue which a lot of people don't um then again it's easy to justify to say fuck why wouldn't i buy my my giant jacked up truck and, and drive all over the place. And why would I ever go green? Right. And, and then it becomes a political issue, which is annoying. Right. 
Um, but that's sort of how it ends up being that, oh, these, right. you know, this, that, and the other thing, it becomes them versus us. And it's, it's a mess. Anyway, we mess. could talk all day about that. Let's it's, move on real it's quick. The, um, it's oh, the sorry. frog. If you put a frog in a pot of water and, you know, if you had a pot of boiling water and you threw the frog in, the frog would immediately jump out. Yeah. But if you put him in a pot of water and just slowly turned up the heat, he wouldn't jump out. He would just eventually die because he doesn't notice that the change is happening so slowly. Yep. And with global warming, it's a lot like that. It's going to it's gonna get to the point where when people are dying, you know, there's a lot of these storms. And then uh, certainly with the hurricanes and, and, oh, the polar vortex. Well, why is the polar vortex, uh, you know, if there's global warming, how come we're, it's really cold and we're having a winter <laughs> storm? Well, because the polar vortex is supposed to be over the pole, but it got pushed off of the pole because of a really warm, high pressure area that came in from the other side. Yeah. And it, and, and it's moved the weather, weather pattern. And now that, that cold air was supposed to be over the North pole has slid down over New York city. It's not <laughs> supposed to be over New York city. Yeah. You know, but then we have politicians here in the United States, particularly last four years, there was a gentleman <laughs> you that <don't> say. <laughs> was, this was his argument. It's like, well, why is there a snowstorm then if there's global warming? Yeah. And it's because you don't understand how it works. Yeah. <laughs> you know? It's easy to question everything On if average, you don't even. It's warmer everywhere. The yeah. average temperature, it's the hottest summer we've ever had. You can still have a storm in the winter. <laughs> but, you know, you want to pick one statistic and then base your whole argument on yep. one statistic. You know, the sample size is too small. You can't say, well, you know, uh, to go to the veganism argument, people say, well, there's a guy in Bulgaria that lived to 112 and he ate meat every day. <laughs> it's like, okay, so you're basing your whole argument on a sample size of one person. Yep. Why don't we take an average of everybody that had eaten meat every day of their life and see what the average lifespan of them is? I'm sure it's not 110. Yeah. But they're going to they're gonna hang their hat on the argument that there's a guy in Bulgaria that's 110 and ate meat every day. Okay, well. Well, it's the same thing. I've heard, I've heard arguments against seatbelts for the same thing, to say I was in an accident or my buddy was in an accident and he wasn't wearing a seatbelt and he was fine. Right. Or he got flung from the car and because right. he got flung, he survived blah, 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 all these random things. Or my grandpa smoked till he was 97 years old, so it must exactly. not have killed him. And it's like, maybe, A sample maybe. size of one. Yeah, you it's, cannot, it's ludicrous. Yeah, a sample size of one is not, <laughs> is not a valid uh, database. Not usually, no. It's, uh, yeah, it's problematic. I, it's, it's hard. It, being in the world today is hard because especially with social media, people latch on to that one anecdote or that one meme and that one story. They see the headline and they're yeah. like, yes, that rings the bell like, in my it's head. Like, like talking, it's like talking to two idiots, you know? Yeah. <laughs> like this, like this right there. Yeah. <laughs> Speaking of which, I was supposed to mention, I forgot. There's this normally a second co-host, uh, but he was unable to make it. His his wife is ill. Um, so okay. you, you're, so the, we're, you're we're the second idiot, idiot today. Yeah, you're the idiot today. <laughs> well, there, I'm sure there's a lot of meat eaters going, yep. <laughs> oh, the, there will definitely be some pushback for sure. Um, but who cares? That's the whole but, point. And, and again, you know, I, 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 kidding aside, you know, I don't want to kid the meat eaters. You know, it, it's it's not about, you know, to, it, it's fine. You want to eat meat, fine. Just be aware yeah. of what the issues are. 
and and be aware that if you do go with a plant, like now some of the, I, I had a Beyond Burger the other day. And again, there are people that are even pushing back on some of these Beyond Meat uh, and these artificial meat products. Um, certainly the ones that are, are grown in a lab, you know, these artificial meats that are um, kind of produced in a, in a Petri dish. But some of the ones that are just made from plant-based products, and, uh, you know, even if you have a, a, a black bean burger, instead yeah, of, you know, good. you go and have a black bean burger with like a piece them. of vegan cheese, you know, a piece of cheese made out of uh, cashew nuts, stuff like yeah. this. Honestly, yeah, yeah. I'm not you, a fan. You jazz, but... I'm not a fan some of, of it, cheese. <laughs> some of it, you you would not know the difference. That's you honestly true. would not know the difference. Yep, that and I totally then, agree you know, you can, you know, with a tomato on it and... Uh, you know, there, there's vegan mustards, you know, and mustards, mm -hmm. mustard is a seed, you know, it is mustard is a plant based thing, you can just mush this <laughs> mustard seed up with some vinegar, a little bit of salt, mush it up and you make mustard that way you don't have to put any dairy products in it. Yeah, you know, so maybe a little bit of nuts, a little bit of cashews. I know you're pooing the cashew, but you know, no, I love cashews. Like I just don't particularly right. like vegan cheese as a rule. Right. I've, I've well, had, you haven't had the right vegan cheese. I guess. I, I agree with you. There's, you know, it's hard to get. The problem is that, you know, if, if you just go into the local grocery mm -hmm. store, they've got the, you know, like the craft slices of vegan cheese. You yeah. know, <laughs> if you go to, there's real specialty shops and it's more expensive, you know, and then all of a sudden, instead of paying $5 for a block of cheese, you're paying $15 for a block of cheese because it's vegan cheese, but it's really good and it's made by, you know, an artisan that's, that's been doing this and he's got one and it's, so once it becomes more mainstream and it becomes more into the industrial food complex that's producing our food is producing vegan cheese, then it'll be much nicer and uh, much more readily available and much more uh, inexpensive. Yeah. But like until that happens, we just have to kind of kick the ball forward and, and, and help people to, to, to see that there is a, huge benefit not only to the planet but also to us uh, individually uh, health wise and um yeah it, are you gonna live to 110 like the bulgarian guy that eats <laughs> meat every day maybe not there's a lot of factors you know <laughs> yeah there's a lot of factors but you increase your odds you increase your chances sure. you know you increase the chances of not getting heart disease by not eating red meat don't smoke don't eat red meat you probably for right away guaranteeing you'll live five years longer. Man, you know, I enjoy average. both of those things. That's that's the problem. That's really the problem. I I recently quit smoking, um, but maybe I need to kick the the steak after that. But regardless, yeah, and, and you're young enough, your body will recover. You yeah. know, people that are older, you Hopefully. know, uh, I know my grandfather. Um, he passed away and had lung cancer, and um, he he was a little bit annoyed you know, when he, when he got lung cancer, cause he said, well, I, I quit smoking 25 years ago. Yeah. It's like, yeah. When you were 50 something. Right. <laughs> and he had smoked and he worked in a chemical, you know, in, in Kodak at the chemical factory. Yeah. And back then you could smoke inside the factory, Yeah, you know, so there's chemicals and then he's smoking and the chemicals are going through the cigarette. So they're adding to what he's already, you know, and um, so he was a little bit annoyed that, but you know, the damage was done. You know, so it, it, the sooner you quit, the better is, is yep. you know, the sooner you get on the right track, your body can recover. And um, but there's a certain point when it can't when 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 your body starts aging, it, it also is not rebuilding, not recovering anymore. For and sure. So I think uh, um, my, my favorite joke of uh, like vegan stuff is I always say to my wife, like she'll 
uh, she'll have like vegan ice cream or, or something like that. And I'll try some. I was like, wow, you'd never know. There's no meat in this. <laughs> and then, <laughs> or she'll just make like some random, she'll just have some, some random vegan uh, substitute thing. I was like, huh, who knew? Who knew? You know, you'd never guess there's no meat in this. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Cup of tea, you know, just, yeah, it was weird. Like, just don't, you know, like now almond milk and all of these things, people want, you know, that's all uh, we have. In the house. Yeah. I don't, I don't exactly. care about that. Like that's, that's, I think because she's been vegan for a while, it'd be easier for me to transition because our fridge is basically full of vegan stuff as it is. Right. Um, right. It's, but especially in our community, it's terribly difficult to find. Like even if you, if I, even if I went vegetarian, if you go to the average store to buy a can of like veggie soup, ninety nine percent of the time the broth is chicken broth or some sort of beef Absolutely. broth in a vegetable soup. They don't advertise right. it, but if you read the ingredients, right. it's almost impossible right. to get away from it. It's difficult. There, there has been some uh, recently, uh, some uh, industrial food companies that were putting things on like vegetarian, mm-hmm. right? And they and and they got caught because they're putting like chicken stock or whatever, yeah. you know, some animal products in it. And they were and then their defense was, well, we didn't say it was vegan, <laughs> but it's vegetarian. And it's like. Okay. It's still lying. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. No, anyway, so there were some class action lawsuits, some some that went in favor of the plaintiffs. But, um, you know, certainly companies are becoming a lot more careful now of, of making sure that they're labeling things correctly. If it's vegan or if it's vegetarian, they they're, they're kind of have to point out if there's dairy products in it. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. Anyway, let's uh, before we dial it down here, let's do a quick uh, little little Jets talk. How do you how did you get into uh, being a Jets fan? Um, cause you live in, you said Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Correct. Yeah. Correct. So then how does, well, I grew yeah, up in Toronto. So yeah. when I was a little, little boy, I was a Leafs fan. And Yuck. then, um, <laughs> you know, they, they went last one to Stanley Cup on 1967. Yep. Back with Dave Keon and George Armstrong. Who else? <laughs> the year my dad was born, anyway. 1967. What's that? The year my dad was born. He's never been alive for a Toronto Maple Leaf Stanley Cup. Hang on a second. Your, your dad's five years younger than me. <laughs> I guess so. <laughs> All right. So, um, yeah. Way to, way to make a guy feel. Uh... So, anyway. I love doing so... that to my mother-in-law. I do that to her all the time. She's like, I'll ask her, when did you graduate? She's like, 1982 or something. I was like, wow, my parents hadn't even met in 1982. <laughs> she loves it. So... So shut up, Reg. So um, <laughs> as I got a little bit older and then I was going down to the hockey games, uh, Harold Ballard and King Clancy, they had this little box in Maple Leaf Gardens and they would sit down in the corner and watch the games. Mm-hmm. And it was right around the time that uh, I realized that Harold Ballard was uh, being charged with tax embezzlement or, you know, stealing money from the from the Leafs organization because he was like, yeah, he was the owner, but he was like the chairman of some board and stuff. And he was shuffling money and laundering money through and he actually got busted for it. And I kind of realized that he was stealing our money. <laughs> and the other realization came when some of the players like Daryl Sittler, when Daryl Sittler left, yeah, um, there was some controversy because, you know, as soon as Daryl Sittler became really good, you know, and became kind of the world-class player that he, that he, that he was, he got traded, you know, he got mm. sold because he had value, right? And so Harold Ballard never seemed to want to spend the money and, and keep the players 
You know, I was so happy when Lanny McDonald left. He went to Calgary. What happened? <laughs> well, himself know, he a from, he's from like Medicine Hat or something, yeah. right? So he goes back and he's playing for Calgary. And like the next year he wins the Stanley Cup. I mean, that team I mean, was stacked, but yeah. <laughs> was it? I mean, what's that? That team was stacked, but yeah. <laughs> I know, but still, like, I mean, you couldn't be happier for Lanny McDonald. Of course. You know? He was like the number three overall pick when he went to Toronto, you know? Mm. And whatever year it was, like 70, 71 or whatever. So he was there in Toronto. He's there for like 10 years. And always, you know, the team was always almost good enough, you know. And then <laughs> they would like make the playoffs and go out in the first. Oh, next year, next Man, year. Man, that Everybody sounds familiar. Always next year, you yeah. know. They've been saying that for 50 years now. Yep. You know, 55 <laughs> years they've been saying that, you know. So it's always next year. And I came to the realization that a large part of it was Harold Ballard really didn't care. He just wanted to make money. It was a business to him. You know, yeah. Hockey Night in Canada with the TVs, that's Harold Ballard, right? Oh. He, all the lights in Maple Leaf Gardens, like Maple Leaf Gardens always had the best. When you watched on Saturday night, Maple Leaf Gardens, the lighting in there was immaculate. You know, the rink was painted white. You know, they never used to paint the ice white before. Yeah. You know, it was, it was like a gray color. It looked like steel. Mm -hmm. Right. Because it was just a cement floor. They put ice on it. You know, you <laughs> yeah. see old photos, the 40s and the 50s. It wasn't white. It was, yeah. it was so after Harold Ballard, he started painting the the uh, the ice white. He had all the lights in there and everything. And he had a big deal with the CBC and he was making money off of that. Um, and he didn't put the money back into the team. You know, when the players would become valuable, he'd trade them or sell them. You know, <laughs> he didn't want to. Oh, they their contracts up. You know, oh, yeah, I'm a superstar now. I want you know, X million dollars, you know? And he's like, nah, I'll trade you. Yeah. Anyway. So I realized <laughs> that. So I, I, I kind of, kind of disowned the Leafs, you know, probably about, you know, 1979, 1980. I, I, I come to the realization that I just didn't care for the Leafs anymore because why, you know, why support Harold Ballard and King Clancy so they could just take our money. <laughs> and so, you know, a few years after that, I joined the air force and, um, Winnipeg jets, version 1.0 was uh very popular for some reason you know I, I was out on vancouver island so you, you you know people really didn't like edmonton calgary you know it just seemed like winnipeg was a, a good team to support back then you know and so i was like yeah winnipeg jets they're all right and um then then they were gone you know and they went yeah. off to arizona <laughs> and i was sailing around the world so i really didn't follow hockey much i really didn't have a team and then i was back here in fort lauderdale i got married to my wife marcy in uh, 2010 and um it's right around then this you know they've been 10 years now it was 20 2011 when yep. the jets came 2.0 when they came from atlanta anyway so we, we just bought this house here in fort lauderdale and all of a sudden the jets are back you know we got a team again and i was like i saw the logo <laughs> and i was like i'm in i'm all in for the new new Winnipeg Jets from day one. It was like, yep, I'm a hockey fan. Because I started going to games here, watching the Florida Panthers. Oof. And back then, <laughs> well, they're good this year. Don't, yeah, don't yeah, poo-poo them. Yeah. You know, they got Bobrovsky finally. and they finally got they're good. behind the bench, you know. <laughs> they're doing okay this year. But, um, and so, and it's fun. I tell you, we go to games there. We'll, we'll look on, um, you know, NHL ticket exchange you know, at, at six o'clock and I'll say to Marcy, you want to go to the hockey game? Oh, is there any good seats left? I'm like, ah. there's a pair in the lower bowl. They're kind of expensive though. They're 60 bucks each. Oh Ooh, God. is there anything cheaper? 
And I'm like, well, you know, there's there's like 15 throw at the blue line, and they're 50 bucks, you know. Oh my you god. Go, yeah, but the beer is 15 dollars each. You know, we're gonna we're gonna end up spending 200 bucks for the whole night. I'm like. <laughs> Yeah, well, you know, my buddy in Toronto, he spends 250 bucks for the nosebleed, for one seat in yeah. the nosebleed. So, yeah. you know, she's like, oh, okay. Oh, and it used to be free parking. They start charging us 20 bucks for parking. And, you know, it's like, oh, it's outrageous, you know? <laughs> so, so we get in the car, we drive out there, and, you know, for 60 bucks or 50 bucks a seat and a couple of $15 beers and $20 parking, you go to the hockey You're game. You're laughing. It's, yeah. It's great fun, you know? My so favorite joke was during when, uh, when, uh, the league started back up. Everyone kept making the jokes that, uh, well, the Florida team's already ready. They haven't had fans in the stadium for 10 years. So they're... Uh... Right. Well, I, I was making that joke with Dale too because um, we're at 25% capacity and they showed a picture of the stands, right? Because the, all season they've been uh, um, having fans in the stands here. Yeah. And, um, you know, they block off down by the glass. You can't go down by the glass. You can't uh, go down for the for the pregame uh, warm-up you know, the 20 minute warm up, And I used to love doing that because I would just go down, stand right behind the glass with my beer and, you know, the, the glass and I, and I try not to flinch and it'd be all these Florida people like, Oh, you know, with these pucks coming at the glass. And I'm like, the trick is to not flinch, you know, yeah. or like, hold your hand up, you know, cause then the guys will try and shoot. Cause they'll try and hit your hand behind the yeah, glass. Yeah, yeah. I just hold my hand up, you know, <laughs> but I loved it. I, I love going when, um, Winnipeg first uh, came back into the league because they were Atlanta Thrashers. They were mm -hmm. in the Southeast Division here, so they came here twice a year. Yeah, and so I go to both games here. Um, there's some great clips on the internet of me in my Liney jersey, um, <laughs> with uh, um, when when he scored a goal and I'm kind of dancing around. I'm on the TV. Dale oh, actually sent it to me, I think. <laughs> but uh, yeah, because he was watching the game from up there, and. Uh, I was I was sitting down right next to the glass next to this uh, camera guy, you know, he had a mobile camera. And so I used to go to all the games when the Jets were here, but now they only come here once a year. And obviously this year, zero times. Yeah. So, um, but uh, yeah, it's really, it's really been, it's a lot of fun having the team here, uh, the Panthers. So I, I try and support them as much as I can. Um, it was great when Hutchie uh, was down here for, for short term. Hmm. You know, Michael Hutchinson, yeah, yeah, yeah. the goalie, he was here for a little bit. And um, I so I went to the two games that he played home games here. And then I also went to um, the Toronto game. Uh, I went to the Toronto game and I right at the beginning for the warm up and uh, Hutchie was playing for Toronto. And um, I went down behind the glass for the warm up. And so I'm down at the Toronto end with my uh, uh, Jets. I have a Hutchinson jersey because my last name's <laughs> Hutchins. So I have a Hutchinson jersey. And so I'm I'm wearing it and I go down behind the glass for the warm-up. And there's a guy with a Broda, Turk Broda shirt on. Wow. And he's sitting in the seat right behind the glass, right behind the net. And I'm going down there for warm-up. And he's just a young guy. And I say, Hey kid, you're in my seat. And he turns around and goes, Oh, sorry, sir. And he gets up. I say, I'm just kidding. I'm just come down for the warm-up, just like you. And he's got this Turk Broda. And I say, What the hell are you doing with the Turk Broda shirt on anyway? And he goes, Is my grandfather. I'm wow. like, oh, no kidding. <laughs> so, yeah, it was kind of cool. So I, I, I met Turk Broda's uh, grandson. So six degrees of separation. Your best friend. Yeah, yeah. So, but I love to when the Leafs are. I, I like going to the Leafs games here again when they come down because I, I go and I tease the Leaf fans. I'm like, 
Oh, you're a Leafs fan. I'm sorry. You know, you didn't, didn't you realize what was going on all those years? You know, so. uh, they're just so fragile. I actually, Dale, speaking of Dale, he sent me a picture of you, uh, the shirt that you had made with, with tape, I think. No, you had made oh, your oh, own jet, jet shirt. shirt. Well, so I was, um, you know, my wife and I, uh, when we met, she had a place in LA. So we have a lot of family in LA and we actually have a small little, uh, you know, a tiny house that we, that we maintain there for when we're, in LA. And so I'm out there and the, the jets are in the playoffs. This the, I, maybe the first time they were in the playoffs and they're playing Anaheim. Mm-hmm. And so I'm sitting around the house and I'm like, we should go to the hockey game. Let's just see if there's any seats available. And my wife's like, I don't want to go to, you know, I, really, you know, I'm like, I'm going. So <laughs> I didn't have any, I didn't have any gear. Right. So I just went and got a blue shirt and I had some white house paint and I just taped it up. And I put it on, and it looks it looks authentic. It looks, it looks great. great. Yeah, the yeah, picture no, here looks amazing. It looks great. And uh, and so off I went to the game, and that series, you know, against Anaheim. I don't know if you remember, but the Jets were in the lead like ninety five percent of the time. It was like only they, they let the whole game, and then right at the end, Anaheim would tie it up with like two or three minutes left. They'd go to overtime, and the Jets lost. Yep, All I four games that. were like that. <laughs> you know, so it was like they were in the lead. For 95% of the four games. And it was yeah. just the last few minutes, they give up the tying goal or or the winning goal and, and lose an overtime. And it was just, oh, so disappointing. It, it was funny. It was just ugh, very frustrating. But anyway. <laughs> I'm I a Wings fan. That, I get that. Uh, you know, if, uh, if Florida does really well and Winnipeg does really well, maybe we'll have a Florida-Winnipeg uh, um, Stanley Cup final and I'll be off to go to some Winnipeg cool. playoff games down here in Florida. Yeah, that'd be amazing. Um, yeah, yeah, like I said, I'm, I'm a Wings fan, so I understand hockey frustration right now. Um, after years of success, we're, we're kind of dragging our ass on the ground. But that, yeah, that you're being a said, Wings fan? I'm, I'm a Wings sorry. fan. Yeah, it's actually, you can see <laughs> right over right there is my signed Cronwall puck right there. Right there. Oh, um, I'm sorry. Yeah. It was good until uh, like 2016 uh, when the world ended, basically. My, my entire life, they had made the playoffs from 1990 till 2016. Right. It was wonderful, but now it's not so wonderful. But anyway, I digress. Yeah. Um, all right, so we should start dialing it down here. We're closing on two hours. Uh, <laughs> we, before we go, uh, so the Cove won an Academy Award. How does that work for you being involved? Do you, Is it one well, trophy for everybody? Still, or? So- yeah, there was two actual awards. Um, one went to the director, one went to the producer, because it's okay. a documentary film. And they only allowed you to have four people go up on the stage for the, the actual award as well. Were you there? I did go to the ceremony. I was sitting oh. up in the balcony. We had a little bit of an entourage up there. Cool. But um, it was very limited, because you're a documentary film. You know, If you're yeah. a big feature film and you've got you know, uh, Clooney and or Tom Hanks, you know, you get all the seats down in the front and they give you like 20 tickets. But <laughs> with a documentary film, it's not like that. So um, but um, Fisher Stevens, um, as the producer, um, has one of the Academy Awards and Luis Sohoyas has the other one, which uh, is kept at the uh, OPS World Headquarters cool. um, in, in California. So uh, I saw it recently. I, I touched it again um, <laughs> when I was there recently. So, um, yeah, so there's only two. What does it do for you? You know, there, there's there's no money involved. It's documentary filmmaking, you know. Yeah. So if you break even, you, you're doing okay. Um, 
a lot of it is philanthropic, you know, like I mentioned, Jim Clark was very generous in, in um, financing OPS and, and helping us produce the film. So but there's no money, you know, at the end of the day, you know, if you do a few million at the box office, well, 50% of that goes to the theater owners, right? Oh, yeah. 20% of it goes to the distribution, you know, making the prints of the film, making the, you know, the posters and the, uh, the distribution company, you know, cause you have, um, you know, roadside attractions and focus media and all of these other companies that, you know, when you watch the film, you see all their banners at the front, those yeah. people are all getting paid, <laughs> you know, when it comes down to the director of expeditions, yeah, not so much, you know, <laughs> <laughs> so the people that risk their lives to go in and actually make the film, you know, my, so that's, that's how the world works, isn't it? Hollywood works. It's, that's it's how everything works. That's the entire world. Know, that's and, and every the distributors yeah. and, and the theater owners, the guy selling the popcorn, you know, those are the people making the money. <laughs> The important people, you know, <laughs> you know, the, the people that actually make the film, certainly with documentary filmmaking, it's more, um, you know, it's a passion uh, more than a, a financial reward situation. For sure. And, um, you know, there, there's a little bit of money that comes in um, to OPS and that kind of gets rolled back in. But it's not, you know, we're not all driving around in Ferraris. I can tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, fair enough. Yeah. Fair enough. Cool. Still, um, did you uh, rub elbows with any super famous people while you were there? Um, yes. I mean, and still, because we're, we're you know, we we are um, an organization that uh, you know kind of attracts celebrity in the way that you know. I'm not saying they're greenwashing themselves, but they, you know, they have extra, you know, expendable yeah. cash, and they like to donate philanthropically as well. Of course. So and so, so we have um, had a lot of people on expedition with us, a lot of uh, well-known celebrities, a lot of famous people. Um, we're good friends with Lief Schreiber, cool. uh, the actor. You know, <laughs> he's been in Donovan, uh, yeah. Ray Donovan, uh, stuff like that, and uh, quite a few. Uh, well-known feature films. Um, so he's, he supported us and, um, uh, come on quite a few trips with us. And, uh, so, so you know, things like that. Um, yeah. I, I do remember when we went to the Academy Awards, we, we did get a limousine and uh, we had two limousines and there was, I don't know, maybe 10 of us. Like I said, there was four people that were down in the front that had the, uh, the seats in case we won that got to go up. And so <laughs> yeah. that was, um, Fisher and Louie and then Rick O'Berry and Paula Dupre, uh, who was uh, uh, a co-producer with Fisher. Cool. And so those four were down in the front and we had a little bit of an entourage up in the balcony where I was. And uh, so we had two limousines and when we got out of the limousines, um, they dropped you off right there and there's, you know, little grandstands and there's all these people there and, you know, people buy tickets to sit there and watch all the celebrities come in. And uh, I had my nice tuxedo on, I had a haircut shaved, you know, and I get out of the limousine and I'm waving and I'm waving and I can see people going, oh, who is that? Who is that? Who looks familiar? And I'm waving, like I'm pointing, you know, pointing and waving. Yeah. Yeah. You know, signing autographs. Like, yeah. Yeah. He, yeah. He, he looks famous. Yeah. And he's got a nice tuxedo. He must be, you know, he must be somebody. And so that was my, that was my best moment was just walking the red carpet and pretending like I owned it. That's amazing. <laughs> Have you heard of that? There was a social experiment um, that some guy did. He just decided they were going to film it. So basically he, um, he paid people to pretend to be excited to see him. He was a nobody. He was just some random dude. Right. And he paid like a handful of people to kind of come up and be like, oh, wow. And they don't say his name or maybe they do. Yeah. And then they just sort of take a picture. They, they all start taking selfies with him. Right. Suddenly he has this crowd of 
tens of people, yeah. dozens of people. They're like, and people would show up, and then he would ask them like, like, oh, I love, loved you, you know, I love your movies or whatever yeah. they say. And he's like, what's your favorite? And they'd be like, uh, he would try and like quiz them to be like, how do that, you that think me, you know the Oscars. me? Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's amazing. Oh, shit. I'm walking the red carpet. Yeah. <laughs> Just make up, yeah. Just just own it. People Fake it till you make it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's all it's 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 great fun though. Like it, you know. The best, I think, the best experience was Moondog and I went to Blue Ocean Film Festival in Savannah, and we were doing a lot of the film festivals at the time. So, um, you know, between Sundance and you know trying to get distribution for the film, we were doing a lot of the you know you do the film festival circuit. And you're trying to get distribution. You're trying to get a lot of people to see the film. And we were doing um, some of the, uh, you know, the oceanic type film festivals as well. And so when we showed up there, um, uh, you know, we we were pretty uh, one of the more expensive productions because a lot of the productions that go to these oceanic film festivals they're kind of educational films, yeah. films operating on much smaller budgets, and even you know shorts. A lot of short films that are people that are making to try and highlight particular uh, issues with the ocean and stuff. And so, um, you know, Louis was busy and we're, we're all busy going to different film festivals. But Louis said, well, why don't you and Moondog go to this one? Because it's a lot of your crowd with the diving crowd. And from South Florida, you know, we just drove up to Savannah, Georgia. It's like a six, seven hour drive. So we just drove up for the weekend to go to this film festival. And they showed the film two or three times, a couple of different venues. But because our film was a, you know, a big production feature-length documentary they put us in the big theater for our final thing and then we had a q a and everything and we had people that were the moondog and i have known for years in the um you know underwater filmmaking world in the underwater filmmaking industry and they were coming up to us and just you know like like we were celebrities and they were like <laughs> oh my god i've never seen a film like that before how you know like, how come we don't know? How come we never heard of you guys before? And we're like, oh, well, you know, we look old, but we're, we're kind of new to this, you know, and, uh, <laughs> and and it was really that was really heartwarming. It was really quite incredible that um, it was, uh, you know, the peers from the underwater filmmaking industry were coming up to us and, you know, with tears in their eyes. Yeah. Um, and one of the guys, Wes Skiles, who um, was a cave diver, passed away like a year and a half later in in. Um, just off the coast here, Boynton Beach, just up okay. north of Fort Lauderdale and um, diving. And uh, and it was he had a um, he had um, explored some caves in Bahamas and he had written an article for National Geographic magazine and he had the cover um, on National Geographic magazine of a photograph that he had taken in a cave in Bahamas and he passed away just before it came out. Oh, like incredibly sad that he passed away for one but right before he had his like his shining moment of this national geographic article but he was there at the um blue ocean film festival in savannah and he came up he had tears in his eyes and he was like i can't believe yeah what a powerful piece of filmmaking you guys have done and um so you know it's not so much about you know the, the big celebrities that you meet and and some of the exciting things it's those moments that really stand out because that's then you know you're you know, you're, you're accomplishing something. You're really, you know, making a, a poignant film that people that have been trying to do it for years and years and years, and they're watching you go, geez, you know, 
these new guys come in and wow, look at what they yeah. did, you know, but well, yeah, to have the... we, we had a lot of help, you know, and we had, um, you know, like I said, Jim Clark was uh, generous enough to finance it because of that. Then when Fisher Stevens got involved, said, Hey, you know, we got to get Mark Monroe, the writer, we got to get Jeffrey Richmond, you know, they cost money, you know, but yeah. you know, we, we had a little bit of a budget and so it became, you know, a feature film. And, and then anytime you do a feature film, you know, even a million dollars doesn't go far, you know, you, <laughs> yeah. you know, you pay this guy a hundred grand, this guy a hundred grand, you, you know, this trip, and then you get some camera equipment, all of a sudden you've blown through 500 grand and you're like, yeah. what happened, you know, <laughs> and, uh, and we haven't even finished the film yet. And so then, you, you know, then it takes a bit more money and you, you make a film for a few million dollars, you know, Sony now, I mean, it, if they don't spend a hundred million dollars on a film, it's, it's a B film. Yeah. You know? It's crazy. You know, like, like a, a major film, like now with Netflix and like, you know, getting Tom Hanks in to do something and some of these films, they're doing them on a budget, you know, 50 million. <laughs> you know, yeah, it's a, you know, it's like, you know, yeah, we can't, we can't spend 100 million. We're Netflix. We can only spend 50 million on a film. And I'm like, yeah. 50, geez, <laughs> you know. But no, it's, it's great that but, you were able to make something that resonates with your peers, which is what, frankly, everybody right. should be trying to do. Um, I mean, if you're in it for commercial success, that's a separate industry and that's something you can strive for. But yeah, to have people kind of fighting the same fight that can acknowledge kind of how well you did. That's amazing. And I think commercial success in a way, the Cove was a commercial success in the sense that it didn't make us money, mm-hmm. but it, it, it enabled the oceanic preservation society to, to get, now we, you know, we, we got credibility, you know, we, we, we have, you know, when yeah. we go and do stuff now, people are like, Oh, yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> Louie and Simon are here. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's, um, you know, we, we, you know, people realize that we kind of know what we're doing and that, you know, we're not just, uh, and, and following it up with racing extinction was, was very good. Um, you know, we've got some other stuff planned now too. Louie and I are, um, you know, even though Louie has been doing some other projects recently, the last five years or so, uh, you know, game changers and a, a couple of other things that he's working on. We've got some stuff uh, that we're we're working on together that hopefully in the next year or so is going to be uh, almost as as exciting as the Cove. Um, I don't think anything will eclipse that. Just from you know when I say exciting, exciting for us and exciting for um, you know the visual imagery. But yeah. you know the actual you know we, we we really captured lightning in a bottle there. You know, and I think Fisher Stevens when he saw our B roll and he said, "That's your fucking movie." That was. <laughs> you know, that, that was the, the genius of that Fisher brought into it. And yeah. he said, I know just the guy to, to rewrite, you know, this. And that was Mark Monroe. He came in and kind of rewrote this scene goes here, this scene goes here. And Jeffrey Richmond came in and edited it together. And then it became the cohesive uh, thing. We got Jay Ralph to come in and do the music. So that was an original score that Jay Ralph did. And that was done after, you know, the, the, the movie had been put in that form by Mark Monroe and Jeffrey Richmond. So it's a real process, you know, it's, yeah. it's, um, yeah. And to, and to do that again, to have all of those elements come together like that, that's, uh, yeah, that's, it's real magic and it's hard to, to get that magic, but we've got some other ideas. Louie and I are working on some stuff right now that, uh, that, uh, we think will be, um, visually, visually, just blow people away and that's really what we want to do now you know and so it's we don't want to be a one-trick pony you know you don't want to just go in you know racing extinction was a little bit of that element where you're you know activist 
environmentalists, uh, you know, where you're going in and trying to get a little bit covert behind the scenes and with Racing Extinction going to China and doing the, um, um, which, which kind of ties into this whole pandemic thing, because in Racing Extinction, going to China and going into the, the shark fin markets and oh, stuff, you know, yeah, these, yeah, these yeah. markets in Japan where they're having all of this, you know, in China, they have these wet markets where you go and you can buy, oh, you want to eat a peacock? Yeah, there's a market you go to and they have all these animals in these markets. And that's where, you know, people will eat bats or they they want to buy live bats because of some medicinal purposes. Oh, yeah, we're <laughs> going to eat the bat gallbladder or yeah. whatever it is, you know. So they have bats in this market. Right. And they think that the the virus went from the, the, the bat to the pandolin, which mm. the pandolins, this weird. Um, I've seen uh, a picture of them. Like I think. An armadillo kind of yeah. uh, mammal marsupial thing. Uh, and it's a, kind of an odd little. Uh, creature but you know that's where they're thinking that the genesis of this current uh, coronavirus mm -hmm. originated in in the wet markets of china and so you know there's a little bit of our mo is, is to kind of go in and, and do that um you know sneaking around and, and revealing behind the curtain thing but um we, we've got some other stuff that we want to try and you know branch out a little bit uh, from that in in these next projects no awesome so, and i don't I don't want to cut you short, but I'm going to wet myself. So let's, uh, <laughs> let's say what, um, do you have, um, obviously the OPS website, um, are there things that you like maybe social media plugs or website plugs or anything you want to plug before we stop? Well, just, um, the www.opsociety.org. Okay. So, uh, o Oceanic Preservation Society was a, a lot of typing. So we, we just have opsociety.org, yeah. all one word. And um, with these new projects that we're starting to work on right now that Louie and I have been working uh, for the last six months on um, pretty heavily, starting to come together, we will be uh, introducing a new um, Instagram page. And um, but also on you can just look at Oceanic Preservation Society on um, Facebook and also Instagram. There's also Racing Extinction uh, has an Instagram page as well. And we'll be introducing a new uh, Instagram page for our new projects as well. Okay. But uh, all of that will be featured on the opsociety.org webpage awesome. as well. We'll definitely plug it in the show notes and, and uh, you know, try and direct people towards it. Because I, I, I have to say that movie is um, uh, amazing and traumatizing and powerful and important. And and it's, it's, it's frankly, it's good movie fun, if, if we're being honest. Like, it's... It's compelling. Absolutely. You know. I, I couldn't agree with you more. Uh, and I hate when um, the interviewee says that, you know, it's like when you watch <laughs> CNN and CNN's not biased. And then it, and then the, the host says something and the, and the guest says, I couldn't agree with you more. It's like, <laughs> yeah. But, but I couldn't agree with you more, yeah. Reg. <laughs> totally but, fair. You know, totally it, fair. It really is. And that's what I was trying to say to, to get a film that kind of hits all of those points. You know, it's entertaining. It, it inspires people to be the change, you know, it inspires so many emotions in you. And, and, and like I said, when, 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 when we get down to that low emotion, we don't leave you there. We bring you back up. There's, there's so many things happening in a documentary film. It was really unique. It was really, really a special thing to be part of. And, yeah. um, you know, it was very, very exciting. And, uh, uh, hope, hopefully some of our new projects are, are, are going to touch on some of that and take it to a, a, a different level. But, like I said, that is, um, yeah, one of a kind film. So if you haven't seen the Cove, it is a unique, a unique film. 
Well, I'm excited to see your your new stuff coming out as it comes out. I'll try and keep an eye on it. Maybe we'll we'll keep sharing it on our social media too to get our little our little community involved as well. Um, so thank you so much, Simon. Uh, this has been a blast talking about all things kind of documentary filmmaking, veganism, right. Winnipeg Jets, all all the gambit. <laughs> Thanks for joining us. Yeah, Her- Harold Ballard even got in the conversation. Imagine yeah. that. <laughs> and Turk Broda, of all oh. people. What are the odds? <laughs> yeah, people are Googling Turk Broda right now. Yeah. <laughs> we are tangential. If if we're anything, we're tangential here. So it's it, it's been fun. It's been good. Awesome. All right, well, well, thank you very much, Reg. And uh, say hello to the other idiot for me. I will. I will. Randy says hi. <laughs> all right, cheers, man. Let's, let's keep right. in touch. See you later. Okay. Bye-bye. <laughs> Bye. Well, now it's just me. <clears throat> I hope you folks all enjoyed that. It was oh, what a guy. He's he's definitely lived an exciting life, and I can't stress enough. Everybody needs to watch the Cove. If you watch Blackfish, which most people are familiar with, um, the story of the orcas <clears throat> and uh, just orcas in captivity and and the horrific nature of that, and the issues with you know Sea World and and other organizations, which we get into in this in this episode. Um, then you'll definitely, or the cove will resonate with you. I think it's, uh, like I mentioned in the episode, it's powerful, it's it's compelling, it's interesting, it's it's a good movie in and of itself. Uh, it's just extra powerful because it uh, it's true. Um, <laughs> so hope you definitely check it out. It's streaming on Amazon Prime for sure. I don't know if uh, any other streaming services. Um, like Simon mentions, go to uh, opsociety.org to check out their other work um, like Racing Extinction and, and uh, other projects in the work and see their team and contact and, and get involved if uh, if this is a uh, something that you're into but uh, that said thank you for listening hope you hope you enjoyed um, like I said unfortunately Randy wasn't able to make it here which is always a bummer but the guy's at home being a being a dad so you know you know, slightly more important than uh, slightly more important than podcasting, I suppose. It's close. It's close. It's it's a close second, I'd say. But um, anyway, Randy wasn't here, so we thank you all for listening. Um, my stupid computer logged me out here, so I need to quickly get into um, something. Okay, so I got in here. Um, find us on social media as well as the OPS, um, follow them. Um, but also you can find the two idiots podcast on Instagram at two idiots podcast on Facebook, search for the two idiots podcast on Twitter. We're two idiots show on YouTube. If you're not already watching this, uh, just search for the two idiots podcast, look for our logo and join the fun. Also send us an email. If you want to get in contact, that's how we were, uh, just chatting with Simon. Shit's falling out of my pockets. Um, that's uh, how we got in contact with Simon uh, via our email, doubleidiotspodcast at gmail.com. You can reach out to us too. Please do. We'd love to hear from everybody that that's uh, listening. Send us a message on social media. Text us if you have our number. DM us on, on all the things. Send us an email um, if you have anything you want us to touch on or, or you want to just say hi or, you know, that type of stuff. If you want to help support the show on a more specific level go to patreon.com slash two idiots podcast and join up for as little as three bucks a month you get bonus content 
there's different tiers. You get different perks at each tier. Um, you get merch. You get entered into draws. You get, you know, voting rights. You get to, to, to get all the extra stuff that uh, being a, a tip fan gets you. And from the $7 tier and above, you get included in our idiot Hall of Fame. The Hall of Fame. The important people, the, the best of the best, the biggest supporters of the tip, um, they get included in the Idiot Hall of Fame. Our current members are as follows. Mr. Brian Moore, thank you so much. Drew McDonald, good friend, good pal. Thank you, sir. Kayla Lumberg, on behalf of her and Jordan Peters, are also supporting the show. Thank you, folks. And Danny Duick. Uh, yeah, thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. So, if this is something that you feel like supporting... But please don't feel obligated. As long as you're listening, that's all we ask. Um, but if you feel like throwing a couple of a couple of nickels towards a couple of idiots, please do. Patreon.com slash two idiots podcast. Or you can get yourself a, some two idiots merch by going to teespring.com slash stores slash two dash idiots dash podcast. You can rep the brand. Uh, we're working on some new designs that'll go up in the store hopefully soon. Um, so keep an eye on it. Go to the website, get yourself a mug, a shirt, a sweater, all that stuff. Um, we'd appreciate it. So folks, without further ado, uh, hope you enjoyed. This one was a long one, but I think there's a lot of, a lot of meat on the bones. (laughs) No pun intended. Um, yeah, there's a, there's a lot there. So keep fighting the good fight, folks. Um, everybody at OPS, <clears throat> wish you all the best continue your your filmmaking and uh let's all try and treat each other a little bit better treat the environment a little bit better let's uh let's work together all right folks thank you for listening hope you have a good day <clears throat> excuse me hope you enjoyed and uh cheers we love you